not fear the one and only Tucker Carlson. He's here, right here, right now. Buck up, it's going to get better. Hello, welcome to Tuckered Out. I'm Troy. I'm Tyler. And we're here today to talk a whole lot about Tucker Tarlson. <laughs> It'll be the last time I had, I had to do it. <laughs> How you doing, Tyler? Not too bad. So, you know this already, but it has been two weeks since we actually recorded an episode. And since then, we have gotten a shit ton of new patrons and new emails and... Yeah. I want to talk about all of those things, but if we just talked about everything, every way that our audience is sweet and thoughtful, um, we wouldn't have time to do the show. <laughs> so let's thank our patrons, if that's, if that's okay with you. I would love to do that. Okay. We have, he spelled it with numbers, but I'm going to make an inference that I can pronounce it as though they were letters. Uh, his name is Well Actually, and he is a lying, smug, pompous group thinker. Thank you, Well Actually. <laughs> Then we've got Matthew Cooper is a lying, smug, pompous group thinker. Thank you so much, Matthew. And we've got Eli is a lying, smug, pompous group thinker. Thank you, Eli. And we have two new elites. We have Edward Grabo. Grabo? One of those? I'm sure I'm fucking it up either way, but um, Edward Grabo is an elite. Thank you, Edward. And then I'm here because of Knowledge Fight Facebook group is an elite. <laughs> Thank you. I'm here because of Knowledge Fight Facebook group. <laughs> I didn't know Knowledge Fight had a Facebook group, but I'm glad that there is one and they talked about us. That's, yeah. like, super cool. Yeah, whoever mentioned us on there, thank you. You're a hero. Yeah, for real. <laughs> okay, and uh, the first of his kind, Ted Jones, is, a, is our sworn enemy. Thank you so much, Ted. And in honor of our first sworn enemy, I made Ted a little something here. I'm Tucker Carlson, the sworn enemy of lying, pomposity, smugness, groupthink. And Ted. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, for real, your generosity is unmatched. All right. Yeah. And then um, before we dive in here, I do have a couple of announcements. One, uh, some of you might already know, we're on Twitter now. <laughs> you can find us at Tuck It Out Pod. I don't feel like this is too much of a reveal. Uh, Troy and I are bad at Twitter. Uh, where I think both of us actually started using Twitter for the first time in 2021. <laughs> yeah. So so we're going to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's pretty on brand for us, related adopters there. <laughs> yeah, and then the other thing is, um, and again, some of you already know this from the announcement last week, but I'll elaborate a bit more here. So I'm doing a, a Substack thing, and that's going to be twofold. So every week when we release an episode of Tuckered Out, I'm also going to release a Tuckered Out Roundup, where I just address some things that Tucker brought up on the show that we didn't, for whatever reason, have time to get to here, because I'm a completionist and it bothers me that I can't respond to every single thing he says. <laughs> And then the other thing that that's going to be for is uh, doing this show has let me down a lot of rabbit holes. There are a lot of things I've, I've learned about and have developed further interests in. And some of those things are relevant to Tucker's world and what he's trying to do, but they don't necessarily have a place on our show. So I'm going to be uh, every I'm going to shoot for Wednesdays, have a column there as well. So the first one will be up by the time you hear this. It's about something I've, I've said before is propaganda the goal of it is to instill a worldview. I kind of elaborate on that and provide some examples. 
And uh, hopefully people like that kind of thing. Yeah, and then, was there anything else we had to hit up top? Um, yeah, so really quick, we got an email from a fan named Alexander, and it was very long and very thoughtful, and I can't talk about all of it, but something he brought up that is something I can turn into a discussion is he was frustrated with us for not being angry enough when Tucker said uh, something along the lines of, journalists should all agree on a narrative. And I don't blame you. That's something worth being upset about. But so the reason that I suspect that uh, we did not get angry about it is Tucker says so much bullshit <laughs> so goddamn fast. <laughs> um, I like I'm sitting here with pen and paper and I when we're listening to clips, I'm doing my best to like write down everything that I can think of that's wrong and stupid. And I can't always keep up. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to get better with that. But we're gonna miss a couple of things here and there. But yeah, I I agree. Uh, Tucker says a lot of stuff, and we, I can't hit all of it in in one sweep. But um, but yes, I I agree with the sentiment, and yeah, I I wanna I wanna get better at like trying to hit on everything. Yeah, we've we've gotten some amazing emails from all of you. Thank you so much to everybody who's written in. Um, in particular, one that meant a lot to me was uh, we had a, a non-binary listener write in to tell us how it. It's painful for them when their dad listens to Tucker Carlson make a mockery of their existence and laughs along. And so for anyone who has experienced something similar to that, I just want to say, like, I, I mean, we're both, we're both white dudes. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I'm a bi dude, but I'm in a relationship with a woman, so it's easily masked. And so like it, that's something that we are pretty protected from for the most part. And yeah, I'm just a cis het scum. So like, what, <laughs> what yeah. do I have to complain about? Yeah. So like, I, I can't obviously, I, I don't know exactly what that kind of thing feels like, but I can imagine it's terrible. And, um, anything we can do to l- let some air out of that, I, I'm glad that we're here for it. So. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, it's honestly still unreal that people listen to the show. Like, I, I, that's like a dumb thing to say, <laughs> but the fact that people listen to it and, get some relief out of it, get some information out of it, get whatever it is they're getting out of it. It's it's very humbling, and I appreciate it. All right, so I I think that's everything I wanted to hit at the top here. So we're going to spend most of our time this week in the week of the 17th. But since we didn't record the week prior, I, I'm going to briefly address just a couple of things from there that are foundational to uh, narrative see developed later. Also worth noting, I think, is what Tucker doesn't talk about at all in these last two weeks. Never once does he mention the ongoing violence in Gaza or the situation with Israel and Palestine. I have no idea how you avoid talking about that as a news show. It's completely crazy. It's it's ridiculous. It it never comes up, and it, like, I would argue, probably the most important story happening in this time frame. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know exactly why he's avoiding that. The only thing I can come up with is that maybe, like, because Tucker is pretty anti-interventionist, anti-foreign aid. He might think that, like, we shouldn't be supporting Israel because we shouldn't have anything to do with it. And maybe Fox doesn't want him saying that. But I don't know. It, it was weird to me that he he didn't bring it up at all. And then he also does not mention the developments in the Matt Gates situation. My favorite. <laughs> My favorite story. But yeah, uh, Matt Gates' associate in child sex trafficker Joel Greenberg has <laughs> agreed to cooperate with authorities in identifying other people. Uh, to which associates of Matt Gates leaked that he is freaking out. <laughs> so Tucker might regret those those uh, spirited defenses pretty soon here. Oh, uh, 
that's gonna be hilarious if he's like, "What, Matt Gates? I never knew him." <laughs> <laughs> I'm just waiting. So yeah, now let's get into what Tucker does talk about. Anthony Fauci. Here's the nation's most highly credentialed political operative, Tony Fauci, letting you know that actually this mask thing is never going to end. But is the mask going to be something we have with us in a seasonal aspect? You know, that's quite possible. I think people have gotten used to the fact that wearing masks, clearly, if you look at the data, diminishes respiratory diseases. So it is conceivable that as we go on a year or two or more from now, that during certain seasonal periods, Mm -hmm. when you have respiratory-borne viruses like the flu, people might actually elect to wear masks to diminish the likelihood that you'll spread these respiratory-borne diseases. A year or two or more from now. In other words, never. All right, so throwback to our favorite game where Tucker plays a clip of someone saying something and then pretends they said something <laughs> they didn't say. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, uh, the key word there in in Fauci's comment was elect because, uh, you know, it wearing masks and social distancing, flu deaths are way down this year because those things also limit the spread of other respiratory illnesses. So some people who are concerned about those things might decide to wear masks going forward. Yeah, and like everyone has a mask now. Yeah. So it's easier to use something if you already have it. Yeah. I mean, I probably will continue wearing masks in the winter, not because I, not because I'm worried about respiratory illnesses, because it keeps my face warm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Tucker doubles down in his predictions here for how long we're going to be with masks. You're never taking off the mask. Get ready for a lifetime of filthy, wet cotton covering your mouth, reduced oxygen flow to your brain, and a world where every stranger looks the same because no one has a face. When Kamala Harris and her husband kissed the other day while wearing masks, they were giving you a preview of your daughter's wedding. In a masked world, human beings never really touch each other. That, that was fun for me because less than 48 hours later, the CDC issued new guidance that vaccinated people than to wear masks in most places. I have mixed feelings about that. I almost wish they hadn't said that because I... It seems like, so if you go to Walmart or something, there are always a few people that didn't wear masks, like they'd wear it in the door and then take it off or something. But now, like, they just don't check. They just assume you're vaccinated if you're not. And that's dangerous for people. And I feel like that's because the CDC said you don't have to wear a mask if you're if you're vaccinated. Yeah. Um, so I almost wish they hadn't. I feel like I feel like it's making things more dangerous for the people who are at risk who haven't been vaccinated yet. But yeah, I I mean I'm okay with it as like uh, people who are putting off getting vaccinated might be more eager to now. And one thing is like, and I'm not a public health expert, so if I'm wrong about this, somebody please tell me. But <laughs> My understanding of where we're at right now is, like, well, vaccination is still pretty far short of where we would need to be for herd immunity. A majority of people over 65 have been vaccinated, so the mortality risk has been largely reduced. Okay, that's good. Um, So that's good news, yeah, but it just, it, it made me laugh there, Tucker. Just, you're going to watch your daughter kiss with a mask on at her wedding, and then, like, yeah. two days later. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he does not handle that, that news super well. He doesn't really know what to do with it. Uh, so he, he complains for a bit that they didn't issue the guidance sooner. And then he, he makes fun of people who are still going to wear masks. Um, and that's mostly his take on it. That sounds like a Tucker take. Uh, spoiler alert, he will be offered a, another narrative to explain why the CDC guidance changed, uh, later in the week that I think is very funny. Looking forward to it. But first we have to talk about Tyler. Why are they doing this? Is that public health? 
No, it's not public health. It's a kind of punishment. Tony Fauci is punishing the country, you, us, everyone. The question is, why is he doing that? Maybe he likes it. That's possible. But you've got to think that at least part of Tony Fauci's authoritarian germ hysteria is a cover for something else. Could it be that Tony Fauci is trying to divert attention from himself and his own personal role in the COVID-19 pandemic? Now, what do we mean by that? Your punishment is freedom to elect to wear a mask. That's <laughs> Also, Tony Fauci doesn't have the authority to punish the American people. Yeah, he he's not he's not in charge of like mask policy. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's just a generally well liked public face and and accomplished in his field, I suppose. But Tyler, Tony Fauci has personal culpability for the pandemic. Did you know that? Oh, he he was in Wuhan. Is that <laughs> yeah, well, his, his money sure was. <laughs> My God, we cannot recommend more strongly a new piece by Nicholas Waite who for more than 50 years has one, been one of the preeminent science writers in the world. For 30 years, Nicholas Wade worked for the New York Times. He edited the science section there. But this piece did not run in the New York Times. It ran on Medium. And the piece explains where this virus almost certainly came from. In it, Nicholas Wade makes it clear that more than any other single living American, Tony Fauci is responsible for the COVID-19 pandemic. Wade lays out a nearly insurmountably large amount of evidence that this virus originated at the Wuhan Institute of Virology in central China. It seemed to make sense this show and others had raised the possibility from the early days of the pandemic. But this piece all but proves it. So we've talked about Wuhan on the show and how it's bullshit. <laughs> yeah, uh, in, in episode seven of this podcast, we covered lab leak theory pretty extensively. So I'll try not to repeat anything here. And people who read the, the first edition of the Tuckered Out Roundup know a bit about this. So I'll, I'll just go over the broad strokes of the Nicholas Wade situation. Tucker really talks up Nicholas Wade's credentials. And when I looked into how Wade is viewed in the scientific community, I found some problems. For example, I found a blog post by Larry Moran, who is a professor emeritus in the Department of Biochemistry at the University of Toronto. Moran thoroughly breaks down how an article that Wade wrote about the origins of life is filled with errors and blatant misunderstandings of the science he's writing about. <laughs> Dr. Moran writes in that piece, quote, Nicholas Wade is often mentioned as one of the best science writers in America. That's not an opinion I share, although it's true that he writes very well. Another big problem is Nicholas Wade's 2014 book titled A Troublesome Inheritance, Genes, Race, and Human History. In the book, Wade writes about how recent evolutionary changes in human populations are the reason for different behaviors among racial groups. So the differences between races in terms of things like social custom, diet, and IQ are explained by natural selection. The scientific community seems to really, really hate this book. In the sources for this episode, I'll include a piece published by a Wayne State University titled Nicholas Wade and Race, Building a Scientific Facade, where they go over the broad strokes of the ways the book is deeply unscientific. I found other examples of scientists trashing the book, too. Chief among them is a letter signed by 143 scientists whose work Nicholas Wade cited for the book. The signers of this letter make clear that Wade mischaracterized and misrepresented their research. Quote, Wade juxtaposes an incomplete and inaccurate account of our research on human genetic differences with speculation that recent natural selection has led to worldwide differences in IQ, political institutions, and economic development. We reject Wade's implication that our findings substantiate his guesswork. They do not. We are in full agreement that there is no support in the field of population genetics for Wade's conjectures. Wade himself even concedes that the evidence for his thesis in the book is, quote, nearly non-existent. 
I did find a one person who praised the book, though, and that was Charles Murray, who wrote The Bell Curve. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which, if you're not familiar, is the super racist book uh, that dedicates a whole chapter to how black people have a lower IQ. Yep. So with that in mind, Tucker's talking here about a piece that Wade published on Medium called Origin of COVID, Following the Clues, with the subtitle, Did People or Nature Open Pandora's Box at Wuhan? I've seen allegations that the piece is full of errors and misinformation, and that seems to track with Wade's general style, but I haven't done enough research into, into a lot of the specific claims to say that confidently. What I will say, though, is that even in the article, Wade does not draw any definitive conclusions about the origins of COVID-19. He heavily implies that he thinks lab leak theory is more likely, but he also clarifies that he has no direct evidence in support of either theory, and ends the piece with a reminder that neither theory can be ruled out. Tucker, though, treats this as a total vindication of lab leak theory. I, I read the article, and my position on lab leak theory hasn't changed since the last time we talked about it, which is the position of the broader scientific community that it, it's not impossible, but a natural zoonotic origin is much more likely. I'm going to quote briefly from a write-up in Forbes, quote, For a decade, virologists, immunologists, and infectious disease specialists have been writing about how the next global pandemic will likely occur. As the human population continues to grow, humans will continue to encroach on territory previously inhabited solely by animals. Now operating with these shared spaces, animal-human contact is inevitable, and that leads the, to the potential of disease transmission between animals and humans. Given that mutations occur, it's only a matter of time before a disease that's catastrophic for humanity leapt from animals to humans. These events, known as zoonotic events, have happened countless times over human history. Contact between humans and chimpanzees is what led to HIV first appearing in humans. Animal farming with pigs and birds has led to the pandemics of swine and bird influences. The idea that SARS-CoV-2 originated in animals and then left to humans isn't an exotic explanation. It should be the default hypothesis. The Wuhan lab was studying bat coronaviruses, but none of the viruses sequenced at the lab were an ancestor of the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus strain. There were a handful of close cousins, but nothing that matched the virus that causes COVID-19. However, there were, in fact, two different genetic lineages of SARS-CoV-2 that were circulating early, both linked to wildlife markets. One of Tucker's principal pieces of evidence he trots out is the work of Dr. Elena Chan, who early in the pandemic noted it was strange that the novel coronavirus seemed, quote, perfectly tailored to infecting humans, and had had to hadn't had to change much to adapt to humans despite having undergone trillions of replications. There are a couple of reasons why that isn't actually so weird. First, it is widely believed, including by sources that Tucker cites, that the virus was circulating for months before it was actually identified, giving it time, therefore, to adapt to better infect humans before it was closely looked at. Furthermore, the virus appears to be what's called a generalist virus, meaning it's able to infect a wide variety of species. I found some research papers about how it might have become a generalist virus, but to be honest, I don't fully understand them, so I won't talk about them a ton here at the risk of mis misrepresenting them, but I will link them for anybody who's curious. Another piece of evidence from Tucker's camp is that we still haven't found an intermediary host that enabled the virus to jump to humans, but that's not unusual either. It is true that we found the intermediary host for SARS after four months and the, inter and the intermediary for MERS after nine months, but those are more like exceptions than the rule. Efforts to find the inter intermediary hosts for most viruses, including most pandemic viruses, are often unsuccessful. Another thing you'll hear from t people in Tucker's camp is that the virus has what's called a furin cleavage and claim that that's unique among viruses of this particular genus. Furin cleavages are critical to many diseases, including HIV, Ebola, and influenza's H5 and H7, and occur in many genera of coronavirus as well. 
In particular, they're common in beta coronaviruses, which SARS-CoV-2 is. That Forbes article I mentioned also claims that employees from the Wuhan Institute of Virology all tested negative for COVID-19 antibodies, which, if, the, if that's true, would pretty much disprove lab leak theory on its own merits, but I haven't been able to find verification of that anywhere else yet. Furthermore, the theory that this was all planned by China to unleash this deadly virus on the world has some holes in it. The basis for the conspiracy theory actually stems from a 2015 conspiracy that spread in China, claiming that the United States had genetically engineered the original SARS virus as a biological weapon against China. When the novel coronavirus pandemic began, grifters in the conspiracy world quickly just picked up the bones of that old theory and reversed the roles of the perpetrator and victim. Scientifically, it really doesn't make sense that this virus could have been engineered to be catastrophic to humans. Tucker plays a clip all the time of a, of a virologist named Dr. Peter Daszak, saying that coronaviruses are easy to manipulate. That's true, but the thing is, it's impossible for scientists to know what any particular manipulation will do. Viruses are complex organisms. The entire SARS-CoV-2 genome has about 30,000 base pairs of amino acids in it. Uh, and while there's no te technological reason that a researcher couldn't switch the codons from one amino acid to another, there's no way of knowing what that switch would do to the virus, and you wouldn't be able to know how that change would affect the virus's interactions with humans without testing it on hundreds of humans in clinical trials. So, I I think that's everything we didn't talk about last time we covered this. <laughs> so, bottom line, this pandemic was caused by the same mechanisms that every other pandemic was caused by, and it's not a giant conspiracy to... Yeah, yeah, and we don't live in a country. <laughs> <sighs> so, none of that's new. What's really shiny and new for Tucker to play with in this story is the fact that Fauci was supposedly funding the research at the Wuhan Institute. We'll get to that shortly, but let, let's listen to how Tucker talks about the coronavirus when he has a villain to target. Millions of people have died of COVID-19. So it's not a matter of score settling or bl blame assignment to figure out where it came from. If you want to prevent the next global pandemic, you have to figure out how this one started. Millions have died, Tyler. This is a serious <laughs> event. Which is interesting when you consider how Tucker normally talks about the coronavirus. Let's take this example from March when he was talking about Canada's lockdown policies. What's so interesting is that Canada's new rules apply only to COVID patients. Other transmissible diseases are exempt. People with AIDS aren't being sent to internment facilities, thank God. No one's tried that since Fidel Castro did it in the 1980s. Drug-resistant tuberculosis is fine, too. That's a real problem, but not in Canada. Only COVID. A disease with a 98% survival rate. Okay, um, you can't breathe AIDS onto people, Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually don't know about tuberculosis, but isn't is there a vaccine for that? You know, I don't know. Um, I'll find out. Because, <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's not something you get in the U.S. very often, I'm pretty sure. Hey, babe, is there a vaccine for tuberculosis? Um, no, but it can lay dormant in your body. I mean, people that have tuberculosis don't just walk around spreading it around. They're not really careful about it, and they get yearly examinations most of the time. Okay. So I did just ask my wife, who is a healthcare worker, and she informed me that there is not a vaccine for tuberculosis, and it can lay dormant, and people have to get like yearly examinations. Okay. Um, so now we know. Thanks, babe. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Later in that same segment from March, Tucker says that COVID nineteen is quote one of the less deadly diseases that we worry about. So if you're paying attention, COVID nineteen is both an overblown little bug with a ninety eight percent survival rate, and also a catastrophic global pandemic that has killed millions. Depending on who Tucker, how Tucker wants his audience to feel at any given time and who he wants them to be mad at. Right. Um, 
I'm talking a lot. Do you have any thoughts? <laughs> um, no, not really. I just, it takes a long time to debunk all this garbage. Yeah. Okay. So he brings on Alex Berenson to talk about this. Berenson is a, a favorite of this show. Yeah, the name's familiar. Um, I forget what he, he's what he did. The, the researcher who wrote that novel we read from in episode three. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. He also <laughs> wrote a really terrible book about how dangerous weed is. That There's a bonus episode on our Patreon you can listen to where I talk about that. But uh, Alex Berenson is Tucker's go-to COVID is no big deal guy. Something I found out that's kind of funny is like when the when the pandemic first started, Alex Berenson was going to host a show on Fox News called The COVID Contrarian. And then after... <laughs> After cases started to spike and more people died, they canceled that show. Oh, I wish it had aired just once. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he brings Alex Berenson on here, and um, Ber- Berenson isn't fully on board with some of the details of this narrative. This is a bit of a longer clip, but I I, wa- I want to let it pretty much play uninterrupted, because I think it's interesting to hear how Tucker handles it when a guest doesn't fully get on board. What's the truth here? Alex Berenson has spent a lot of time looking into this and into the broader question of how the U.S. has responded to COVID. He's the author of Unreported Truths, the series. We're happy to have him on tonight. Alex Berenson, what is... So that Nicholas Wade piece, as I, I know you have read, laid it out, I thought, with a lot of clarity how U.S. tax dollars wound up in Wuhan funding experiments that may have killed millions of people. Fauci is denying any connection to this at all. What should we believe? So I, you know, I do want to push back on you a little bit here because, uh, you know, I think talking about indicting Tony Fauci is a mistake. Uh, I I think our focus should be on the Chinese. I don't. The Chinese did a lot. uh, They spent a lot of money and a very little bit of that money seems to have come from the NIH, okay? And Tony Fauci saw, oversaw a multi-billion dollar budget. This was a small grant, and it was a portion of a small grant. And I think he probably had no idea, or, or, or you know, if he knew about it, it was five minutes in the course of a year for him uh, as to what was going on. Now, that doesn't mean he shouldn't answer the questions honestly, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't ask them. But I think making him the villain on this is a mistake. I, there are lots of other things I would make Tony Fauci the villain on first. But, but let me let me push back on you just for a second on this one specific question. We're in agreement, I think, on Fauci's culpability for a lot of bad decisions. But on this one specifically, the Wade piece says that money f- came from his agency within NIH. He signed off on it using a loophole that allowed him to get around the federal ban on gain and function experiments and that it went through a middleman to the Institute of Virology, and was used specifically on experiments designed to make bat viruses communicable to people. That seems like a pretty clear link to me. I mean, whether he had a lot of things going on at the time or not. Look, the Chinese were definitely doing that. And EcoHealth Alliance and Peter Daszak have a lot of questions to to, uh, answer. And, And I think you're right. I think Fauci does have questions to answer about this. But again, I just want to point out, he, you know, the 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 institute he ran had a multi-billion dollar budget and he and a lot of it was being spent on AIDS research and other, you know, Ebola research, other research. When he says he, you know, he wasn't entirely sure what the Chinese were doing there, uh, I tend to believe him. Here, here's my biggest problem with Tony Fauci, OK? When you go back and look at the statements that Tony Fauci has made over the last 20 years, they're astonishing, OK? He is deeply, deeply in love with himself. And he wanted to cure AIDS and he wanted to get credit for curing AIDS and it didn't happen for being the guy who solved the HIV crisis. Okay, so Corona comes along and he's gonna be the guy who saves Corona and he's gonna do it with vaccines. 
Well, guess what? There have been two actually pretty good drugs that have come out in the last year uh, that have actually helped people with coronavirus. One is dexamethasone, which is an injectable steroid. That came out of a British trial. And the other are the monoclonal antibodies, okay? Those came out basically of private studies. The NIH was involved, but not deeply involved. You've heard very, very little about those. Why? Because Tony Fauci wants the vaccines to end the coronavirus crisis, and he wants credit for it. And, you know, a lot of what he's done in the last year has been pointed towards that. And I think we've made some bad public health decisions as a result. Well, that's for sure. Let me ask you one last question about the gain of function experiments. They're clearly, almost by definition, potentially very, very dangerous. And I think we're living through the consequences yes. of one of them right now. Why would any money from U.S. taxpayers go to support that, whether or not Fauci knew about it? I think it clearly did and, and was obligated to know. But leaving that aside, why would any money from U.S. taxpayers go towards something like that? Well, there's been this argument that we should test these viruses or we should try to make these viruses, you know, sort of more aggressive and able to infect humans better so that we'll know what viruses in the wild can become more dangerous. I think the Nicholas Wade piece, which obviously you've read, too, is just really good at showing why that's such a phenomenally stupid idea and why gain of function shouldn't go on. And Tony Fauci should say that he should say we're not going to do this anymore because it's dangerous. Yeah. Clearly. And as the Wade piece yeah. points out, we've had leaks from labs of deadly pathogens virtually every year for 50 years. I mean, there's no lab that's impregnable. Uh, but anyway, Alex that, that's right. I, I hope you know, the next time it'll be worse. Tucker, thanks for having me. Yeah. Been pretty bad. Good to see you. So, I'm not imagining it, right? Tucker seemed really annoyed through that whole conversation. Yeah, just like constantly interrupting him. But OK, so Berenson's argument here is. Tony Fauci wants to help people, so he's an asshole. <laughs> he's arrogant because he wants to cure AIDS. <laughs> yeah, like, it seems... I don't, I don't know about those drugs he mentioned, but I imagine that if they worked, the CDC would be like, hey, take these drugs, they help with <laughs> coronavirus. Yeah, it, I didn't look into that a ton. Um, it, it seems like they... They are pretty good, like, treatment for people who already have COVID, but the, the ideal is preventing people from getting it in the first place. Right. Like, dexamethasone is the treatment that Trump got when he was in the hospital. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I was I was hoping he was going to say hydroxychloroquine, because I was going to laugh oh, so know. hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Tuck, I don't think I have any clothes of it, but Tucker did have a different guest this week who's on the hydroxychloroquine tip. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, it was, like, over a year ago. <laughs> but Alex Berenson's critique there of Tucker's complaints about Fauci are kind of on the on point. The NIH, with, which Fauci oversees, gave a, a grant to a nonprofit called the EcoHealth Alliance, which in turn gave a portion of those funds to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So it's not quite the one-to-one link that that Tucker wants to draw. I'll just call him Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a friendship ender right there. Eventually, we're, go we're all going <laughs> to meld into one like conglomeration of T's. I love that our names are alliterative with our title. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have to we have to utilize that more. <laughs> yeah. So then we're we're uh we're gonna step away from this narrative for a bit because Tucker has a breaking update on what might be the biggest story of his career. Well, there's new information tonight about a very strange relationship we first told you about in this show. Fox's Trace Gallagher has more on this relationship. Trace. 
And Tucker, if he were still alive, you can bet Neil Simon would be fascinated by this very Oscar Madison, Felix Unger-esque pairing we have in D.C. And when it comes to this political odd couple of Frank Luntz and Kevin McCarthy, one thing is certain. There was a rule violation. We just don't know which rule, because if... As Kevin McCarthy's people claim, the minority leader was renting 400 square feet from Frank Luntz at a fair market value of $1,500. That would fit within House ethics guidelines. But it definitely violates the condo bylaws of the Clara Barton at Penn Quarter, which prohibits condo owners from renting anything less than the entire condo. And since the condo is 12 beds, 12 baths, 7,000 square feet worth $4.5 million dollars, with $5,000 a month in association fees, experts say full rent would be 25000 bucks or more, which is why a nonpartisan watchdog group is calling for an investigation about whether the House gift rule was violated. And as for allegations that McCarthy was rooming with a corporate consultant and lobbyists, watch. Frank's not a lobbyist. Frank's a friend I knew 15 years before I ever got in, and I just rented a room for a few months there, so I, I don't see that there's any problem along that line. And even though McCarthy is no longer top dog in the House, in Frank Luntz's house, we're told he is top bunk. Neither Luntz nor McCarthy responded to our requests for comment. Tucker. Did he call and ask who's top bunk and who's bottom <laughs> bunk? Because I... <laughs> yeah, show me your sources, Trace Gallagher. No, um, he, oh, but he's ahead. still on this. He's still on this fucking Frank Lutz thing. This non-story? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, like, even if Kevin McCarthy did stay there, like, is that illegal? I don't think there's... Yeah, at, at best, it's either a violation of house ethics rules or the condos bylaws. It's not, like, a law. <laughs> okay, but, like, I don't. isn't this the kind of shit that lobbyists do for a living? Yeah, yeah, I mean, if... if if this is what you're going to get upset about, Tucker, you, there are plenty of other examples you can find. Yeah. And part of the reason I left this in is because last time we talked about Frank Luntz, I mentioned a uh, uh, profile about him in The Atlantic I read about how he was really sad that he wasn't good enough to get Mitt Romney elected. Um, okay. And I forgot to read a quote from The Atlantic, that Atlantic piece that I really wanted to get to. When he's at home in Los Angeles, the newsroom is the high point of Luntz's week. He turns off his phone and gets a plate of spaghetti bolognese and a Coke Zero and sits in front of his 85-inch television alone in his 14,000-square-foot palace. That's as good as it gets for me, he says. That is the saddest thing <laughs> I have ever heard. So then uh, we've got one more stop to make in the previous week before we get to the the week of the 17th. So last Tuesday, Tucker played a clip of Michelle Obama talking about how a lot of black parents are scared when their kids do normal things like get a driver's license. Because traffic stops are so much more dangerous for black people. Tucker makes a meal out of it. He's like, oh, I guess Michelle Obama is the most oppressed person in the world. And he brings on Candace Owens to make fun of it with him. And it, it's it's really... I didn't... We don't have any clips of it because it's stupid and boring. But then the very next day, he plays that same Michelle Obama clip again. And he does something with it that I found very unsettling. Who are the most oppressed people in the world? Could it be Christians in the Middle East? Child slaves in Sudan? Yeah, they're oppressed. But the world's most oppressed person is right in this country. It's Michelle Obama. How oppressed is Michelle Obama? She's so oppressed, she told us recently, she's afraid to get her driver's license renewed. She's terrified at the Whole Foods in Martha's Vineyard. 
Many of us still live in fear as we go to the grocery store or worry about walking our, our dogs, walking our dogs or allowing our children to get a license. I, like so many parents of black kids, have to that the the, the, the innocent act of getting a license mm-hmm. puts fear in our hearts. Yeah, she's afraid to get a license. Michelle Obama cares deeply about racism. It's kind of the focus of her life. Sort of weird, given that, that she doesn't seem worried at all or even aware of the rise in targeted attacks against Asian Americans. And there have been a lot of them. Just this week, an 80-year-old Asian man was brutally beaten in the state of California. On tape, you may have seen it. The suspects have been arrested. The interesting thing is they're probably not white supremacists. One of them was only 11 years old. You never hear Michelle Obama mention attacks like this. Why is that? Seems like the one thing she won't talk about. There is a vaccine for TB, but it's not widely used in the United States. Okay, there is a vaccine for tuberculosis, but it's not widely used in the United States. (laughs) Thanks, babe. You can just Google it. (laughs) I was in the middle. No, not you. Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay. Where to start with that one? Um, When Tucker says that... That's one of his tells when he says the perpetrator of something probably wasn't a white supremacist. That means they were black, and he wants to draw attention to it. Well, okay, I'm I'm stuck on, like, okay, Michelle Obama is not an Asian person. So why would she bring up Asian American crimes when it's not something she has experience with? Like, I'm not saying you can't bring it up, but it's like he's saying that because Michelle Obama didn't bring it up, that it's not an issue... Yeah, that, that she doesn't care about racism. Yeah, why does why does Michelle Obama have to bring it up for it to be racism? No, <laughs> and just because Asian American people are suffering doesn't mean black people are also suffering in different ways. The, the, a whole bu- the, whole bunch of whole bunch of garbage here. This is something where because I watch every episode of Tucker's show, I'm aware of the meta narrative going on here, um, and I'm also realized this week that I'm a hack and a fraud because there. <laughs> There was a clip a couple of weeks ago where Tucker did a whole segment where he showed a chart of crimes committed against different racial groups, and he made a point to illustrate that uh, black people committing crimes against Asian Americans are the only group where the victims of the crime are more likely to be outside their own racial group. And I, I couldn't find that clip, but I did find this one of him talking to Jason Rance in April. Attacks against Asian Americans are on the rise. We hear that a lot. We almost never hear details about the crimes themselves. They just become kind of political cudgel. But our friend Jason Rance looked carefully into the crimes and joins us tonight to explain what he's found. Jason, thanks for coming on. So a day after the Atlanta shooting, Chris Hamner posted on Facebook that we've, quote, all had bad days, but it never justifies hate crimes. Well, the day before, he allegedly committed a hate crime against an Asian-American woman in Seattle as she was in her car with her kids, screaming vulgarities at her like, quote, Asian B-word, punching his fists into his palms like he was ready to attack them. And luckily, she was able to escape. Now, this was not the only time he allegedly did this. Online, he's a model BLM supporter. He slams cops. He supports Joe Biden. He hates Donald Trump. He speaks out against hate crimes. And yet he finds himself now accused in two separate instances of anti-Asian hate crimes. He's behind bars right now at a time where we're told by activists and politicians that white supremacy and or Trump rhetoric has caused this increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans. And I took a, a look at the numbers. It's just not there. It's being committed overwhelmingly by black men in this region. 
the age of irony. Jason Rance, thank you. What? Yeah, so the, the point they're making is that it's not a white supremacy issue because these hate crimes against Asian Americans are be- mostly being committed by black men. So when he plays a clip of Michelle Obama talking about racism against black people, he's like, well, racism is the focus of her life, so why doesn't she talk about all the black people that are killing these Asians? Like, that, that's fucked up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's so fucked up. Yeah. And then he uh, he brings on a uh, an author named Ying Ma, to talk about this and this is on its face it's not a very interesting conversation but just the way tucker responds to this compared to if we were talking about crimes committed by white people is worth noting ying ma is happy to talk about it she's the author of chinese girl in the ghetto she joins us tonight ying ma thanks so much for coming on so Thank all you, of tucker. us are seeing this if you're concerned about racism and i noticed the biden administration announced today that the single greatest threat we face is white supremacy single greatest threat why doesn't Michelle Obama ever mention what the rest of us are watching? Well, it's not just Michelle Obama. It's the Biden administration. It's most of our political leaders, um, even though st- far too many of the horrific attacks against Asian Americans happening practically every other day now, far too many of those attacks are perpetrated by black um, perpetrators Our leaders simply are afraid to utter the word black. Um, What we need in this country is an uncomfortable but honest national conversation about the prevalence of black crimes in general and black on Asian violence in particular. Um, Now, what we actually could benefit a lot from is the leadership of black role models uh, like President Obama, like black leaders at the black in black churches across the country. Um, we need leaders to come out and denounce black on Asian violence unequivocally. And I, you know, I was a big fan of President Obama when he bluntly talked about fatherless black households back in 2008. That took courage and that took honesty and leadership. And I do hope that he will display the same kind of courage and leadership on this particular issue, especially given that President Obama grew up in Asia, in Indonesia. And what we need is that we need leaders like that to call on the black community to engage in some serious soul searching, to actually go out and tell its community that these attacks are heinous, they're despicable, they're disgusting, and that it's not okay. Um, We need that honest conversation. There is great friendship between blacks and Asians in this country. And so at this point, we are calling on our friends in the black community to please help, to please display some leadership on this issue, Um, because what is going on is simply not acceptable. And there are far too few leaders who are willing to even utter the word black when describing these crimes that we see on video far too often. It seems reasonable and honest and measured to me. Yingma, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Tucker. Reasonable and honest and measured yeah. is the opposite of what I would use to describe that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, imagine for a second. We need, we need leaders in the white community like Donald Trump and Kid Rock to come out and say... <laughs> Ted Nugent <laughs> needs to come out. Like, he'd lose his mind. <laughs> that would not be reasonable and honest and measured. Okay, Racial violence is bad, and it doesn't matter what racial groups are hurting the other racial group. But they're pretending like people are saying, oh, white on Asian violence is bad, but black on Asian violence is good. Like, that's not... No one is saying that. Michelle Obama wants to lecture you about racism. Why isn't she talking about this one? (laughs) 
There's a lot of racisms in the country. And, like, he didn't have to talk about this. It wasn't a breaking story, and he had already played that Michelle Obama clip the day before. Michelle Obama, who hasn't, like, been in the public light for years. Like, why is she... So, like, there was no reason he had to do this segment. He wanted to make this point. Yeah. (laughs) So that's all we're going to talk about from the previous week, and that brings us to... Monday the 17th. To start off, Tucker has some weird ideas about how geopolitics work. Same as usual. (laughs) Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. The United States remains the most powerful country in the world. That's the good news. What's interesting is that this country has occupied that position for so long that relatively few Americans have considered what would happen if we slipped from that perch. Would it matter if America became subordinate to other nations? There's a debate about that. Let's see. At work, does it matter to you who the boss is? It probably does matter. That's the person who can fire you. And the world isn't so different from that. The top countries give the orders. The rest of the planet takes the orders, whether they like it or not. We've lost sight of that because for more than a century, America effectively has been in charge of much of the world. And that's exactly why we have stayed rich and free for that time. Most Americans on some level understand that this is an arrangement worth preserving, if only because the options to it are so much worse. Scandinavia, you're fired. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what what point he thinks he's making. Like, countries don't get hired and fired. (laughs) The top countries take the orders and the rest of the planet obeys whether they like it or not is a childishly simplistic view of the world. Yeah, and, like, this is a really small thing, but what the fuck does... We're the most powerful country even mean. Like, presumably he's talking about, like, military strength, but, like, military strength isn't how countries negotiate most of the time, because, like, having friends is good. (laughs) Yeah, it... That's such a dumb view of the world. (laughs) Yeah, and, like, there's there's a lot of ways that we could talk about power that America is not very good at. <laughs> yeah, we need to keep our military stronger. China's going to fire us. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah, he he is worried about the military slipping up, though. The military is hiring all these pregnant pilots and transgender marines instead of focusing on keeping us safe. Uh, th- are we talking about that again, or is that just... No, he, he definitely brings it up again. Oh, my God. Um, and to illustrate the degradation of our military, he plays a recent army recruitment ad. Listen to how pissy he gets at the end of this. This is the story of a soldier who operates your nation's Patriot Missile Defense Systems. It begins in California, with a little girl raised by two moms. Although I had a fairly typical childhood, took ballet, played violin, I also marched for equality. I like to think I've been defending freedom from an early age. A way to prove my inner strength, and maybe shatter some stereotypes along the way. I also march for equality. Oh, shut up. Who cares? Please stop talking about yourself for once. It is boring and irrelevant and insulting. This is not just your country. It belongs to all of us. Your job is to defend it. Please do so. What the fuck? Holy shit. (laughs) There's absolutely no way he would have responded like that if it was a male soldier. No way. Like, that that was so angry yeah why do you hate women tucker like why is someone talking about their life on a front to you for real <laughs> and he hasn't even gotten yet to what he's really worried about like he the reason that the military is slipping is a big problem 
Because uh, women are in it, I guess. <laughs> but what's that going to lead to, Tyler? What are we going to be too weak to defend against if we have all these women? It, you're not going to guess. I'm not even going to ask you. <sighs> Yet it's becoming clear they have no interest in defending it. And here's the latest evidence of that. It comes from CBS last night. This is a clip from a 60 Minutes report on, of all things, UFOs and the U.S. military. Watch this. Oh, my God. <laughs> aliens? <laughs> we're, we're not going to be strong enough to fight off the aliens if we let women in the military? <laughs> yeah, that's his concern. <laughs> I... I cannot stress enough how much Tucker talks about UFOs on his show. <laughs> like, of the last six episodes, he's talked about UFOs on five of them. Oh my god. <laughs> it's all because there are these these videos of uh, unidentified objects that lead to the Pentagon has confirmed are real. And what he's upset about now is that somebody on 60 Minutes who worked in the Navy, I believe, said that they, they observed phenomena like this every day for two years and so tucker is furious that the military isn't paying more attention to finding out what these things are because they're a national security risk they're too busy with all these woke politics to worry about the ufos yes the military known feminist icon (laughs) (laughs) and i i'm not going to give a lot of airtime to the ufo stories here and that's kind of frustrating for me because i'm also very interested in it there's just not a lot that is known And so Tucker, there's not a lot that he can say, and he just repeats the same, shouldn't we know what these things are? Over and over and over again. It's like, well, yeah, Tucker. (laughs) But, like, we don't know right now. We're we're working on it. Like, if anyone is equipped to find out what they are, it's the fucking U.S. military. (laughs) There's a, uh, a report next month that the Pentagon is supposed to issue to Congress about it that... Hopefully there'll be some good information in and maybe then they'll have something I can dig into and we can cover Tucker's coverage of it more. But at this point, there's there's just nothing. And so just be aware, he talks about UFOs fucking constantly. <sighs> this is like going back centuries, the Area 51 conspiracy theories. <laughs> like, yeah. Maybe not centuries. Yeah, A long time. People yeah. have been scared of aliens. Another thing he does that I didn't cut any of on Tuesday's show... So there have been some instances before where, like, he read a letter from a high schooler aloud, and then um, another time where there was a high school girl who was told she couldn't pick Candace Owens for Black History Month by another student, and so he had that he had this high schooler around to talk about that. And I I never cut those clips because I think it's wrong to, like, I mean I've said before I had some shitty opinions when I was fifteen, and I would be pissed if somebody brought me out on national television to air them. Yeah. Um. I, just, I think it's irresponsible. On Tuesday, this last week, Tucker had a 10-year-old on his show. What? Um, because this 10-year-old spoke at a school board meeting about how uh, he thinks that mask mandates in the school aren't good. Okay. And so Tucker brought this kid on for an interview. And it made me so sad. Because, like, this kid is so clearly just repeating shit that his parents have said. Yeah, when you're 10, you don't have opinions <laughs> yeah. yet. And Tucker is like, has the school tried to explain these policies to you? And the kid's like, no, and I haven't seen any science that says these masks work. And it's like, oh my god. It, yeah, because of all of the research you've done, kid. <laughs> it's it, it's a shameful display. So we're going to skip that. 
And then um, from there, he circles back to the Nicholas Wade piece, and it's interesting how, now that he's got got some time for the story of the season, how he talks about it now. We learned last week in a remarkable and very tightly reported piece by Nicholas Wade, who for 30 years was the top science correspondent at the New York Times, that Tony Fauci himself signed off on funding U.S. tax dollars for the Wuhan Institute of Virology to do the research that caused the corona pandemic that created COVID-19, which escaped from that lab. That clearly happened. And he definitely signed off on the funding for that research. So before he was using some couching language, like where the virus almost certainly originated. Now he shed that entirely. Just that clearly happened. Yep. <laughs> so that's fun. He, he's got a bit of a new angle to sink his teeth into this time around, though. But he hasn't apologized for that. He hasn't taken any responsibility for it. According to Tony Fauci, the real culprit behind this pandemic is systemic racism. COVID-19 has shown a bright light on our own society's failings. When people of color get infected with SARS-CoV-2, they more likely will develop a severe consequence of the infection, almost relate to the social determinants of health, dating back to disadvantageous conditions that some people of color find themselves in from birth regarding the availability of an adequate diet, access to health care, and the undeniable effects of racism in our society. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Dr. Fauci. Yeah, it's not my fault. Yes, I signed off on the funding that created COVID-19. But really, the lesson is we've seen a spotlight shined on our society's failings. In other words, it's your fault. Right. No. That's not what he said at all. Yeah, and this is something we're, we're going to talk about a little bit later, too. And then, like, Tucker, the charitable interpretation that he doesn't understand what systemic racism is. Yeah. Um, because it's always, whenever someone tries to talk about it, he's like, it's your fault. And the- He seems to lack a grip on the concept of systemic issues of any kind. Yeah, like, <laughs> the, the point of the word systemic is the modifier there is yeah. that it is not specific to any individual <laughs> it is mm-hmm. people can with the purest intentions participate in systems and still perpetuate racism if the system is racist right i i can't imagine he doesn't understand that but he sure doesn't seem to um, willful ignorance perhaps so tyler i it is not lost on me i have named out candace owens twice in this episode without making you listen to her voice <laughs> But unfortunately, <laughs> we can avoid her no longer. Oh boy, Even. my favorite grifter. <laughs> Candace Owens is the host of Candace and a frequent guest on the show, we are proud to say, and she joins us tonight. Candace Owens, thanks so much for coming on. So Dr. Fauci, a man who deals in science and the things we know, has diverted blame from himself, where it ought to reside, clearly, to the rest of us by saying it's systemic racism that has caused the suffering of COVID. Assess this claim, if you would. Oh, I mean, you know I love this. It's just so brilliant. Left is always looking for a victim narrative. And let me tell you, if there's ever been a victim that is deserving of airtime, it's science. Science has been killed by the left. Science is, it used to be this thing that we all loved. I'd like to eulogize science because it made so much sense and now it's suddenly over. I like to say that that Dr. Fauci to me is like, you know, when you're a kid and you play that game, Simon says, Simon says, touch your head, Simon says, touch your toes. You've always wondered who is Simon and why are we doing what he says? 
Simon is Dr. Fauci. He's making this up, up as you go along. Wear your mask. Simon says, wear your mask. Simon says, don't wear your mask. Simon says now that COVID is racist and it affects black people more poorly. We don't know why he's saying it. It makes entirely no sense. But apparently a lot of people are following his orders. And this is his new push to blame this somehow on systemic racism. By the way, if he's concerned about systemic racism and he's talking about how COVID might affect black people, I think what he's hitting at is obesity, right? We are, we, 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 repre- dis- we are, uh, represent like a higher uh, percentage of people that are obese, black Americans, and obesity is the number one killer in America. He might. It's interesting how she only stumbles when she's saying something true. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, so I have five things. So (laughs) uh, we touched on two of them. And um, okay, COVID is racist. Uh, COVID's not racist. Racist systems perpetuate racial disparities in the effects of COVID and symptoms. Okay. Why listen to Fauci? Okay, miss, I love science and I want to proselytize science. We listen to Fauci because he is the scientist. (laughs) He is the nation's top disease expert. (laughs) Jesus Christ, it's not... Okay, and then, oh, Fauci says that COVID is racist, but what about obesity? Obesity is also a problem and it's also a systemic problem. Black people... Uh, by and large, are poorer than white people, and the cheapest food is shit for your body. Yes. <laughs> so it's just, oh god. She knows. She knows how stupid everything she says is, and that's why it makes me so mad. Yeah, it, it is kind of interesting to see. Like, how can I talk around the truth here? <laughs> for real. He might be onto something there, but it's nothing to do with race. Race is not determining whether or not you're fat or whether or not you're skinny. And these are good discussions that we should be having. Of course, what the left is obsessed with right now is politicizing science. And right now, the policy is: if you want to accomplish anything in life. Just call the other thing racist. To say not to have what I want would be racist. And that's exactly what they do over and over and over again. Yeah, it's it's the scientists who are politicizing science and not you, <laughs> Candace. Oh, I hate her so much. <laughs> so, so, Tyler, in this next bit, Tucker is going to tell Candace about a meme that he saw. <laughs> <laughs> and then she shares an anecdote from her life that she thinks he's using to make a point. But she accidentally blows up one of Tucker's biggest narratives and doesn't even realize it. Oh, no. Oh, I'm so excited. To eulogize science, that's there's something very poignant about that because what you're saying is true. I mean, I I guess there's a meme going around online online that I I can't resist repeating because it's so perfectly 2021. Why shouldn't, given the current state of air quotes science, people identify as vaccinated. Why do you need an actual vaccine when you can just say I'm vaccinated? I mean, if you can change your sex, why can't you change your vaccine status? Honestly. I, I saw that. And I think it's brilliant. You know, they're saying that there is no such thing as an objective reality, right? Tucker, there's no such thing as objective reality. There's no such thing as being a girl or a boy anymore. And if you disagree with that, you're a bigot. I'm a bigot. Science is not real. Science is whatever we make it. I can walk into a room and I can be a mermaid if I want to be one. So you know what? I, I personally self-identify as somebody who's vaccinated. Not that it matters. I love that I went to the grocery store yesterday. I walk in. The day before, people are wearing masks. Today, nobody's wearing masks. There's nobody asking you to present any cards, right? So shouldn't people be asking the question, if science was so real, why is this allowed suddenly? Get a new joke. What? Why can't I identify as an attack helicopter? Get a new joke. Yeah, Shut up. <laughs> so stupid. Like you, you don't want to know why that's dumb. That's the only. That's the only excuse you have at this point. 
<sighs> but what stuck out to me there was her anecdote about the grocery store. Tucker has been obsessed for weeks about vaccine passports, and these businesses are going to make you prove that you're vaccinated, even if you didn't want to be. And Candace was like, I went to the grocery store, and today, nobody's wearing masks. Nobody's, nobody's making you show a card asking if you're vaccinated. Why is that okay now? <laughs> Maybe uh, maybe your problem solved itself, Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, uh, you remember how, how brilliant that Simon Says analogy was? No, actually, I don't. It, I, don't I don't remember that being a good analogy at all. It, it was so brilliant <laughs> that we just, have to, we just have to do it again. Why did she get to wave a, ma- a magic wand? Again, Dr. Simon Says gets to wave a magic wand, and suddenly it's totally fine for people to walk in. Is he now saying he trusts people to make health decisions by themselves. That certainly can't be the case. This has always been about power from the very beginning. And I personally, Tucker, I I think your program is responsible for a lot of these changes because you started investigating Dr. Fauci. You started asking the right questions about Dr. Fauci that everybody should be asking. And suddenly he's going, oh, look, society is turning normal. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Wrong. Let's keep looking at Dr. Fauci because that man is corrupt. I think you're totally, I think the Simon Says analogy is absolutely perfect. If Fauci came no, out tomorrow and said, wear your underwear inside out <laughs> and put on a Viking hat with horns, the entire Upper West Side of Manhattan would, would do it because he said so. And it just tells you a lot. It's a, never realized what an obedient little country it was. Candace Owens, <laughs> I appreciate your, your wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. What? <laughs> that was the uh, the alternative explanation I mentioned earlier for why the uh, why the mask mandates were lifted? Um, it, it's Tucker did it. <laughs> it's the report again. His show. <laughs> okay. I mean, at this point in the week, it was becoming apparent to me that I had a problem because I I try to have a through line that I can track and kind of ha- have so- have something that I can make a point of at the end and. I had a real hard time with that this week, and the best I could come to for a through line is that Tucker is dumb. <laughs> he is so, like, there are so many times this week where he just, like, him or a guest accidentally say the opposite of what they're trying to say, and nobody even notices. Yeah. Uh, he can't coordinate narratives with guests, and it... I mean, the the things he chooses to cover are interesting, right? I guess if I had if I had a more robust narrative, it would be that. Like, uh, he didn't have to talk about that Michelle Obama clip twice, and that was time he spent not talking about Gaza at all. Right. Um, it's the, the valence of what's important on his show is totally off. But, speaking of things Tucker can't ignore, it, we, we can't get to all this Gaza shit, Tyler, because <laughs> Bill Gates is getting a divorce. Uh. So just days after Bill Gates told us on Twitter that he was getting a divorce, there was new information about his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. You know, those conspiracy theorists say a small group of really powerful people control the world and have an interest in little kids. Just a conspiracy theory. But we will tell you what we do know. That's just ahead. Well, wealthy, powerful people do control the world in a lot of ways. And these particular wealthy people seem to have a thing for kids. So... Yeah, it, I, I was so frustrated by that. that. That's deeply irresponsible in that, like, it, it is a problem that a few wealthy people have so much influence in the world. Yeah. Uh, it is also a problem when a few of them seem to have predilections toward children. Yeah. What is not true is that powerful people are engaged in ritualistic child sex abuse cults. Right. 
But that's pretty clearly the bone Tucker's throwing there. <laughs> right. Yes. And he, he makes that all the clearer in this next clip. If you've ever suspected that all the creepy people know each other, it may be true. We're learning more tonight about Bill Gates's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Fox's Trace Gallagher joins us with more on that story. Hey, Trace. Hey, Tucker. The timeline here is key because the Daily Beast is reporting that Bill Gates started hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein in 2011. Now, remember, in 2008, Epstein was convicted in Florida of having sex with a 14-year-old girl. So three years after Epstein's child sex conviction, Bill Gates reportedly starts meeting with Epstein to get advice on how to end his, quote, toxic marriage to Melinda Gates. And it wasn't just a few meetings, but reportedly a series of meetings over several years at Epstein's $77 million New York townhouse. And the fact that Gates and Epstein were close is apparently something that Melinda Gates found disturbing. Now, a representative of Bill Gates says the reporting on how many times Bill Gates met with Jeffrey Epstein and the reason for those meetings is not accurate. Another Gates Foundation employee says Bill Gates was only socializing with the sex offender to gain access to Epstein's professional connections, though one would assume the fourth richest man in the world would have his own connections. A man who wrote a book on the Gates-Epstein relationship says the divorce proceedings may shed some light. Watch. The fact that this will, will likely go to court or that there will be court proceedings, that there will be perhaps an uglier battle, means that maybe, as far as the Epstein relationship with Bill Gates, maybe we'll get more and more details. And don't you know that Jeffrey Epstein's victims are already asking for more details about that relationship, Tucker? I bet they are. Maybe we can get some actual details. That would be great. And I know that you'll have them first. Trace Gallagher, thanks so much for that. Yep. So... Uh, just want to be clear, there's no evidence to my knowledge at this point that Bill Gates ever engaged in inappropriate sex acts. I mean, if it comes out that he did, then I'll condemn it readily, because yeah. I, fuck Bill Gates. Fuck any billionaire. Yeah. Also, how come they only seem to care when Bill Gates is friends with Jeffrey Epstein and not... Yeah, I can think of a certain other high-profile friend of Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I imagine that Melinda Gates might have been upset that her husband was hanging out with somebody who had had sex with a 14-year-old. Yeah. Um, that's reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> so, Michelle Obama, check. Bill Gates, check. Now, we're going for the hat trick. Well, it turns out you are now required to believe that Kamala, or Kamala, the vice president, whatever, Vice President Harris, is a deeply impressive person. And if you don't think that, if you look too closely at the evidence and concluded that she's not, you're on a list. Who else is on that list? We'll tell you straight ahead. What? Apparently, like, so the story he's going to cover that I'm not going to focus on because it's dumb is uh, apparently it leaked that Kamala Harris, like, has her staff keep track of journalists who report about her unfavorably. Okay. Um, what jumped out at me there at the beginning was Kamala, Kamala, whatever. He did that another time this week, too, when he's like, Kamala, Kamala, however you say your name, like, it, and that might not have jumped out at me, even, even though he did it twice in the same week, it might not jump out at me, except... I know goddamn well he's doing it on purpose. For one, I mean, he said her name properly every time for weeks. He also, th this was a, a focus of two segments on his show. Back in August, he was corrected by a guest on the pronunciation of her name, and he flipped his shit. Tucker, can I just say one quick thing? Because this is of something course. that will serve you and your fellow um, hosts on Fox. Her name is pronounced comma, like the punctuation mark, la, Kamala. Okay? okay. Be, uh, seriously, I've heard... Every sort of Un 
Best okay, so what? That. That's how it is, uh, Kamala. Okay, okay. okay. well, but that's, I think that's, it's out of respect uh, for somebody who's going to be on the national ticket. Pronouncing her name right is actually okay. not, it's kind of a So I'm minimum. disrespecting her by mispronouncing her name unintentionally. So it begins. You're not allowed to criticize Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris or whatever. Kamala. No, because no, no, no. Kamala, Kamala Harris. No, whatever. Okay, look, I that's unintentionally mispronounced your name, question. but I love the idea that she's immune from criticism. So let me restate my question, me because on this qu show, no, no. nobody in it. power is immune from criticism. Our political leaders must be held to account. That's our job. What a piece of shit. Yeah, so pronouncing someone's name wrong isn't criticism. No. <laughs> also, I don't know what like the buzzsaw in the background of that clip was. <laughs> <laughs> so then... That was on a Friday, on, on, on the Monday show, after he acknowledged that segment. Last night's show, you may recall that during the opening segment, we apparently, unknowingly, mispronounced Kamala Harris's name. It is pronounced comma, not semicolon, comma, like the punctuation mark, Allah Harris. Fine. It was a mistake. So he knows damn well how to pronounce her name. Yeah. Made it very clear. So then, all of a sudden, this week, he decided to start mixing it up again. It, that, that's a choice. He's so petty. Like, that's just such a stupid thing. That's not, okay, that's not something you fixate on if you have legitimate criticisms of a person. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, she has a weird name, and I don't like it. Imagine if, like, during the 2008 presidential campaign, if Tucker had had a show, how he would have pronounced Barack. <laughs> Barack. <laughs> he probably would have been on the, the tip that his real name is Barry. <laughs> anyway, Tyler, do you know anything about a, a fellow named Mark McCloskey? The name sounds familiar, but other than that, no. Yeah, so Mark McCloskey, him and his wife, Patricia, made news last year because there was a Black Lives Matter protest in their town, and the protesters were marching toward the mayor's house. On the way to the mayor's house, they had to walk through a street in a gated community, and in that community, the McCloskeys lived. So when the protesters marched on the street... Mark and Patricia McCloskey went out of their lawn with guns. Um, Mark had, I believe, an AR-15, and Patricia had a modified pistol. Okay, yes, I remember these people. And uh, then they got on TV for it. A lot, yeah. Yeah. Mark McCloskey spoke at the RNC. Oh, um, my God. Yeah, they've been made, like, martyrs because they're defending their home against the mob. The mob was just passing their house. Yeah. He says some shit, like, they broke the gate to his house. As far as I can tell, what he means when he says they broke the gate to my house... Is the gate, like, to the street, the gated community? Did they actually break the gate? Like... It, the, there's... I found some mixed reporting on that. It's unclear. Okay. Um, at some point, the gate was broken, but, like, there are pictures of it not being broken when the protesters had already passed it. So, I, I don't know what's up with okay, the Okay, so by break, he means opened. <laughs> and by gate to my house, he means a gate that is not at my house. <laughs> yeah, so... So Mark and Patricia McCloskey were charged with uh, unlawful use of a firearm. The governor of their state has already said that if they're convicted, he will issue a pardon. But yeah, it, Mark McCloskey, he's, he's been on Tucker's show a couple of times and I've ignored it. But now I can no longer ignore him because he has a big announcement. Oh boy. Late last June, a mob of BLM lunatics smashed the gate on Mark and Patricia McCloskey's house in St. Louis. They stormed onto the McCloskey's lawn and shouted threats at them as the McCloskey's were eating dinner. The McCloskey's hadn't done anything. Again, they were on the street. Some of them might have been, like, touching the lawn if there wasn't room on the sidewalk. I don't know. But, like, they weren't going to Mark's house. They didn't know who the fuck Mark was. No. 
They didn't know anyone in the crowd. They were just the wrong color. And for that reason, they got screamed at and threatened. That's the point at which Mark and Patricia McCloskey went inside and got firearms to defend themselves. Because if you can't defend yourself in your own home, when a mob shows up to hurl racist epithets at you, it's not really worth living in the country. That was our view. It's the view of most people. We had actually Mark McCloskey on the show two days later. He made that point. He wasn't very political at the time. If anything, I think he was a Democrat. It didn't matter. That's a fundamental right. And maybe because it is a fundamental right, prosecutors in St. Louis filed criminal charges against Mark and Patricia McCloskey a few weeks later. Their lives changed forever, and a lot of their opinions seem to have changed, too. Now, Mark McCloskey is running for the United States Senate as a Republican in the state of Missouri. Here's part of his announcement video. When the angry mob came to destroy my house and kill my family, I took a stand against them. Now I'm asking for the privilege to take that stand for all of us. So you had a strong reaction to that. Jesus fucking <laughs> yeah. Christ, that was a leap. <laughs> to kill my family. Yeah, fuck when you. black people walked past my house, I heroically <laughs> threatened to murder them. <laughs> yeah. Vote for me for Congress. Yeah, this is so fucking... St- this, uh, is, this is crazy. Yeah, holy shit. When the fascist mob came to my door, it woke me up. I saw... Something I'm noticing a lot among Tucker hasn't done it much himself yet, but a couple of his guests have uh, have allowed the word fascist at leftist activists. Yeah. So be wary; they're going to try to steal that word. Yeah, it, I feel like I've been seeing that around. Like the left calls the right fascists because they're being fashy, and then they're like, "No, you're the fascist." Yeah, it's, <laughs> which is just like. Leftist fascism definitionally doesn't exist. Yeah. (laughs) What the future of America will be if we don't all stand up right now and defend our rights. My name is Mark McCloskey. I will defend the people of Missouri. You have my word. I will never back down. Amazing. Mark McCloskey joins us now. We're happy he is. Mark, thanks so much for coming on. Boy, that moment really did change everything for you, it seems like. It really did, Tucker. And, you know, I'll have to correct one thing. I've never been a Democrat. That was the the worst fake news slur that, that, that has been hurled at me over the oh, last 10 months. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I've always been a Republican, but I've never been a politician. But, you know, God came knocking on my door last summer disguised as an angry mob, and it, it really did wake me up. And as I campaigned for the president last fall, and as we've continued to do rallies and events supporting our constitutional rights, What I've learned is that the people out there in this country are just sick and tired of cancel culture and the poison of critical race theory and the big lie of systemic racism, all backed up by the threat of mob violence. And people are just sick of it. They don't want any more posers and egotists and career politicians going to D.C. All we hear is talk and nothing ever changes. It it just seemed to me that, that... People have to stand up. Each and every one of us needs to stand up now and say we're not sheep. We're free people. We're going to pull the power back to the people and the people that need to go into politics at every level, from the local school board, like your like your guest, John, earlier today, the local city council, your mayors, your state representatives, your state senators, your United States senators. You have to send people to D.C. that are willing to tell the truth willing to fight for our freedoms, regardless of what it costs you personally, economically, 
socially. If we don't stand up now and take this country back, it's going away. We used to talk about the erosion of our civil liberties. In the last hundred and some days since this administration has taken over, there's been the wholesale slaughter of our civil liberties and wholesale yeah. institution of what cannot be called anything but socialism. People being paid with our money to stay home and not work. And, and, our, and our president says, gee, I don't think that's taking place. It's just everything is nonsense. Everything has been upside down, and it's time to straighten things back up. Mark McCluskey, I appreciate it. I have to say I'd forgotten this one fact. Watching the video just now of that day, June 28th of last year, you were denounced by The Washington Post as a racist for defending your house. <laughs> but a lot of the mob were like pampered white kids, I guess, as always. Oh, <laughs> I don't know why I'd forgotten Absolutely. that. Of course they were. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Oh, no. You know, Mark McCluskey, congratulations. All right. I'll just say, for, if, I'm sorry? You know, if everybody out there can, can help out, uh, five, ten dollars, McCloskey for Senate dot com. I sure appreciate it. The left's going to come down on us like a ton of bricks. We need all the help we can get. I appreciate your coming on. Thank you, Mark McCloskey. Thanks, Tucker. OK, I've compiled a short list of things Mark McCloskey does not know the definition of. <laughs> uh, we've, I'm sure I missed some, so I apologize. Uh, we got socialism, uh, systemic racism and critical race theory were the ones that I caught. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Mark McClossey struggles with definitions. Struggles is an understatement. <laughs> this is another example of Tucker reshaping the Republican Party. Th- those are all just talking points that have been on Tucker's show since McClossey was first a guest. I'm guessing that's when he started watching. So, so now that he now that he's repeating the Clarion call, Tucker's going to platform him again. Now that he's running for Senate. Great. We don't need Missouri as a state, right? <laughs> <laughs> You know, Tyler, say say what you will about Tucker, but he is a thorough researcher. In this next clip, he... Uh, citation needed. Uh... <laughs> In this next clip, he explains the kind of deep investigative work that's been going on behind the scenes of his show. For months now, privately, we've been searching for a meaningful definition of the word equity. We've consulted linguists, we've dusted off moldering reference books, we've scoured the four corners of God's own internet all in an effort to figure out what equity is. We've done this not for pleasure, we have hobbies, but because we feel it's our duty as a news program. Equity is now the organizing principle of the United States of America. On the very day he was inaugurated, Joe Biden signed Executive Order 13985. That order makes equity mandatory across the federal government and all the agencies. And yet, strangely, neither Joe Biden nor anyone else in the administration has ever defined the word. So what is equity? Well, tonight, finally, we know what it is. I feel like you have something to say on the stuff. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I did it. I found the definition <laughs> of equity while, he, while you were talking. How, how uh, did you find it? Did you have to pour over moldering reference books? <laughs> <laughs> I had to swim the seven seas. <laughs> Uh, no, no, there's this newfangled uh, doohickey called Google. Uh, equity, the quality of being fair and impartial. Wow, that was hard. <laughs> that took me an entire five seconds. See, now, I, I don't want to diminish your credibility, but in his research, Tucker came across a different definition. Equity, it turns out, is racism. It's as simple as that. Equity is racism. And to be clear, we don't mean racism in the sense that ice cream and Shakespeare and math are all now supposedly racist. 
or that Dr. Seuss is now considered an exalted cyclops in the Ku Klux Klan. We're not talking about the Ilhan Omar Atlantic magazine definition of racism, which, by the way, isn't actually language, but just another blunt political weapon. I wanted to find the Elon Omar Atlantic definition of racism, <laughs> but I was out of free Atlantic articles because I had to read that Frank Luntz profile twice. <laughs> God damn. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Equity is racism. That's your that's your argument. The, those are the results of a months long investigation. Equity is uh... racism. And and not just in the way that what what do you say, Doctor Seuss and ice cream are racist? Uh, yeah, I, what was that about? <laughs> so I looked into the ice cream thing because <laughs> I, I kind of knew what he was talking about with the other examples he gave. Ice cream hit my ear of weird. Same. Here's what I think he's talking about. This is about the famous ice cream truck jingle that plays when the ice cream truck is near. Tyler, do you know what the title of that song is? No, as a matter of fact, I don't. The title of that song is. N-word, love a watermelon, ha ha ha. What? Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. The song is written by a guy named Harry C. Brown. The song begins with the famous ice cream truck jingle, and then a call and response ensues. Brown, you N-words quit throwing them bones and come down to get your ice cream. To which a group of black men incredul- incredulously respond, Ice cream? And Brown replies, yes, ice cream, colored man's ice cream, watermelon. And then the jingle continues. What? Um, the chorus. Is this real? Yeah, the chorus is N-word love a watermelon, ha ha ha. How? How is this real? <laughs> <laughs> so, so today I learned ice cream is kind of racist, I guess. Because <laughs> that is profoundly racist. Yeah, holy shit. <laughs> no. We mean racism in the literal sense, in the way that Martin Luther King defined the term, which is the act of hurting some people and helping others purely on the basis of their respective races. Not a Martin Luther King quote. Bigotry, in other words, prejudice, hatred. That's what equity is. Um, no, actually. (laughs) I don't. How do you, how do you buy this? I'm not sure. Like, I think I figured out the problem, Tyler. We're just speaking a different language. Clearly, right? Like, what other but, explanation is there? But he's going to explain how they finally cracked the code and figured out that equity was racism. We know this thanks to Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago. Earlier today, Lightfoot released a two-page manifesto defining equity. Quote, equity and inclusion are the North Stars of this administration, Lightfoot explained. Then she got specific about it. Quote, On the occasion of the two-year anniversary of my inauguration as mayor of this great city, I will be exclusively providing one-on-one interviews with journalists of color. So in the name of equity, Lori Lightfoot is refusing to grant interviews to white people. Lightfoot took pains to explain she doesn't mean that personally. In fact, she conceded that some of the white reporters who cover City Hall in Chicago are talented and hardworking. But unfortunately, they are, Lightfoot said, quote, white nonetheless. So there it is, as plainly as anyone has ever said it out loud. White people are disqualified because they are white, not because of anything they have done or said or think. Lori Lightfoot doesn't care about that. She says so. Lightfoot is not interested in what these white people might be like as individuals, as people. She doesn't even care what kind of white they are. Their ancestors could be from Italy or Luxembourg or Finland or Spain. They could be members of the British royal family. They could be penniless Romanian immigrants living in a box on the sidewalk on Michigan Avenue. Rich or poor, it doesn't matter to Lori Lightfoot. To Lori Lightfoot, all that matters is the fact they're white because all white people are the same. 
They are entirely defined by the color of their skin. You can see how this makes life a little easier for Lori Lightfoot. She knows who to hate just by looking at them. If someday the Chicago police round up the entire population of the city, Lori Lightfoot would have no trouble pulling the right ones out of line for punishment. By the way, in case you're wondering, yes, that was a Nazi reference. It was deserved. Lori Lightfoot is a monster. Any society that allows politicians to talk like this has a very ugly future ahead. Very ugly. So I haven't listened to Lori Lightfoot say anything, but I don't think she said the only issue is the color of your skin. <laughs> yeah, she. this was a celebration of the two-year anniversary of her inauguration. And for that day, she was only granting sit-down interviews to reporters of color, saying something like, white people have been dominating the press pool all year, it's time to hear what other people have to say. I, I, I found all sorts of takes on this. And I, I, I know some... I know some lefties in Chicago who are no great fans of Lori Lightfoot. Um, was she mayor when you lived there? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't pay attention. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But anyway, reasonable people can disagree about whether or not what she did was like a good move or not. But Tucker's losing his goddamn mind. <laughs> Over like something completely inconsequential. Like. <laughs> yeah, and the white victim hood shit is ramping up enough. I guarantee you, within the next two weeks... Tucker will do an opening monologue about white racism being a problem. Looking forward to it. Yay. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he, you're right. So he uh, he talks a bit more about this, and he reveals something he does not understand about his own job. But of course, no one said much at all about what Lori Lightfoot said in her manifesto. Even Chicago reporters, some of whom could no longer do their jobs purely because of how they were born, offered only tepid complaints. Listen to this person from NBC. Another reporter called and said, hey, I'm hearing they're only talking to black or brown journalists. And I said, what? I, I, it just didn't even sound real. And so I reached out to the communications director, Kate Lefferge, and she texted me back and said, yeah, that's that's true. She said, uh, no, white reporters have been uh, in the room for the majority of the year, and it's time to hear from other people. What? Can this be real? What she just heard was confusion, but not outrage. And yet there's nothing confusing about who Lori Lightfoot is. Lori Lightfoot is a dangerous bigot. Lori Lightfoot is hurting other people because of their race. That's the crime. But of course, it's the one thing nobody wants to say out loud. Here's the response from a reporter at the Chicago Tribune. Quote, I'm a Latino reporter whose interview request was granted for today. However, I asked the mayor's office to lift its condition on others. And when they said no, we respectfully canceled. Politicians don't get to choose who covers them. End quote. Talk about missing the point completely. And by the way, of course, politicians can choose who they talk to. All of us have that right. Thank God. What politicians cannot do under any circumstances is an attack an entire group of citizens on the basis of their skin color. Again, to restate the obvious, that is racism. It is. So it was interesting to me there how. Fundamentally, he didn't understand the line that politicians don't get to choose who covers them. Also, he doesn't seem to know what an attack is. <laughs> it's not the same language. He's all over the place with these words. Yeah, for real. <laughs> Moral, it is also illegal under countless state and federal laws. We are not supposed to allow behavior like that from our government. We are all equal in the eyes of the law. We are all citizens. 
We've got an entire granite monument on the National Mall in Washington promising that we will never behave that way again. We will never allow it. But because we've embraced equity, we're not simply allowing it. We are encouraging it. Yeah. So, uh, so this is Tucker not understanding systemic problems again, yeah, it seems. He really struggles. <laughs> While we're on the topic of Chicago, he, uh, he has another story about the Windy City that he wants to hit. It's sad for people who love the city of Chicago, and all Americans should. It's a thoroughly American city and a great place in a lot of ways to see the city's decline. We've talked a lot about the murder rate, the hundreds of people killed for no reason there every year. We've talked very little about the physical filth, but that's a reality of life there, too. Chicago is infested with rats to the extent that one Chicago animal shelter, the Treehouse Humane Society, is releasing feral cats to get the rats under control. For six years in a row, Orkin has named Chicago as the rattiest city in America. As an alternative to poison, the Treehouse Humane Society offers the Cats at Work program, featuring feral cats who prefer to be socially distant. They will not thrive in a home environment. To hire a cat crew for a home or business, the cost ranges from $600 to $800. Yeah, so this is a story you broke to me last week. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe Tucker talked about it. Yeah. Um, so it, here, he, he's, he says just they're releasing feral cats into the streets to combat the rat problem. Uh, that's not quite what's happening. Here's a better description of the program, uh, and this is from the Cats at Work website. Okay. Cats at Work is a green, humane program that removes sterilized and vaccinated feral cats from life-threatening situations and relocates them to new territories where their presence will help control the rodent population. Rat poison is hazardous to people and other animals, and it's a short-term solution to a long-term problem. The Cats at Work program tries to address the root of the problem instead. Because feral cats are territorial, and rodents are repelled by the cat's very presence, a green solution has emerged. Treehouse maintains a list of feral cats in hostile, untenable situations. There are many spaces where a cat colony is a welcome presence and a deterrent to rodents. Treehouse works to remove cats from dangerous situations and place them with caretakers in areas where they're needed. So they're... It, they're so it's guerrilla cat warfare <laughs> yeah. and not... Yeah. They're, they're put, and not just, like, dumping 200 cats into Chicago somewhere. Yeah, so they're just, like, they're, they're taking these cats out of, out of dangerous situations and putting them, like, in front of businesses or houses and stuff. And their presence is supposed to mitigate rat, the rat problem. Oh, all right. So, Tyler, usually... I find Tucker pretty predictable. Read me a headline, and I, and I can tell you generally how he's going to spin it. He only has, like, three points he ever makes. Right. But sometimes he can surprise me. What I was expecting from this story is, look at Democrat-run Chicago. It's filthy and infested with rats. But his actual take on this is so much stranger. <laughs> so the shelter is, for a fee, placing two to three cats outside of businesses uh, and, re and residences uh, that call for help with rats. Seems kind of inspired. Does it actually work? Well, we wanted to talk to someone who would know the answer. Jordan Reed is a rat wrangler. He says, in fact, dogs would be more effective. We wanted to talk to him for a moment tonight to put a finer point on that. Mr. Reed, thanks so much for coming on. So he's, he's worried about the efficacy of this program. And dogs would be better. <laughs> what? They should be releasing wild dogs. <laughs> he interviews this rat wrangler. <laughs> This is one of the strangest conversations I've ever heard. <laughs> I, I mean, I just, uh, I'm just getting like dogs are better than cats vibes. Like, like he just doesn't like cats. Pretty much, yeah. It's so weird. First, but before you get into your preference, dogs over cats, 
ferrets maybe. Describe for us the rat problem in Chicago tonight. Well, I don't know much about it because I'm out on the West Coast. I only know that I get a lot of phone calls and emails on a continual basis inviting me to come out. What? <laughs> Why are we talking to this man? Yeah, right out the bat. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> and I, I don't know how much I believe that he gets calls and emails asking him to come out to Chicago, but whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, unless people just Googled, like, Rat Wrangler and <laughs> didn't know where he was stationed. Right. I mean, that's that's kind of the point. I mean, you're a thousand miles away and the city of Chicago is reaching. That's how desperate they are, overwhelmed they are by the Norway rat problem. Tell us when you hear of people releasing feral cats to keep rats under control, you, you chuckle silently to yourself, don't you? The ignorance. Just, just a little bit. Uh, feral cats are well known yeah. for the problems they cause the native species, and they're not known for catching rats. Yeah. Right. I, and by the way, anybody deeply familiar with feral cats would know that. So what would you recommend? <laughs> deeply familiar with feral cats. Anyone deeply familiar with feral cats? <laughs> well, How many people I like... is that, by the way? How many? <laughs> Anyone who's deeply familiar with feral cats. How many people is that exactly, yeah, Tucker? <laughs> Well, I like to promote the use of dogs, uh, and I'm well known for my work out here in California and Oregon. Uh, the use of terriers, as well as dealing with the management problems that's creating the rats. Hmm. Terriers, as they were called in Great Britain so long ago, ratters, ratting dogs. How many, how many rats can a well-trained ratting dog, a terrier, take out in the course of an evening, would you say? Just ballpark. They're going to talk some stats. Okay. How many rats can a terrier take out in one night? <laughs> well, I often take my dogs out for three or four hours, but to farm locations, and I've caught well in excess of several hundred in that time period with uh, three or four adult dogs. Several hundred? Well, that's remarkable. Do you let your dogs eat them? No, sir. Just in case of poison, uh, training to drop right. it is one of the first commands they learn. Yeah, so like, like a bird dog, you don't eat the quail, you drop it at the feet of, of your master. And, I go around, and, and la last, I'm sorry. Uh, I just go around and collect them after they're dead. <laughs> what do you do with them? Uh, we give them to falconers or we compost them. Yeah, nothing is wasted. Use the whole rat. I like that. Um, and la last question: Do you <laughs> use the whole rat? Rats aren't that big, Tucker. Like you can't, you can't like split. <laughs> <laughs> Split a rat into like many useful parts. <laughs> he maybe did the guy a favor though, asking what he does with them, because otherwise I definitely would have made a joke about that. <laughs> what do your dogs think of it? I mean, how proud are they after killing two hundred rats in a night? Well, I would answer that question by saying the reason I have chosen this as my fun activity is because I'm embracing the true nature of the dog. So it is my belief that this is truly in the nature of the animal, and because I like terriers, I have to give them an activity. I love that. I love dogs, too, and I agree with you completely. Jordan, thanks so much for coming on tonight. It was great to talk to you. I hope you come thanks back. Thanks for having me. How proud is your dog? Yeah, what the It's a dog. How proud are your dogs after killing 200 rats in a night? Like, <laughs> what, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so weird. So now we jump into Tucker's next big narrative. And because I'm a hack and a fraud, I, I forgot to cut the uh, the bumper before he went to break where he was teasing the story. He calls it satanic. 
That um, sounds about right. So let's hear, let's hear what Tucker thinks is so satanic. Well, just to make it absolutely perfectly clear that they hate you, your family, and your children, and everything you stand for, the New York City Department of Education has produced a new show called Drag Queen Story Hour. It features a drag queen called Little Miss Hot Mess. The show is aimed at children between the ages of three and eight. It's airing on PBS, the state broadcaster. Here's part of it. Hi, everybody. My name is Little Miss Hot Mess, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. I am a drag queen and a children's book author. And you may be wondering to yourself, what on earth is a drag queen? Well, don't worry, because I'm going to tell you. Drag queens, we are everyday people. So today I am going to read from my own book, The Hips on the Drag Queen Go Swish, Swish, Swish. And I wrote this book because I wanted everyone to get to experience the magic of drag and to get a little practice shaking their hips or shimmying their shoulders. At one point in the show, the drag queen declares, quote, I think we might have some drag queens in training on our hands, which obviously is the point. Don't make this a bad thing. That's cool as hell. Yeah, that sounds delightful. <laughs> <laughs> so what's interesting is that I have some familiarity with the drag queen story hour discourse. Um, like, I think I think it was in 2019, there was a library, and I think like California was doing um, drag queen story hour once a week or so, there was a fight among the conservative movement about whether or not they should be upset about this. <laughs> on one side, the, you had one side represented by David French, who's like a libertarian type, who's like, well, no, this is fine, the government shouldn't give a shit whether or not a library wants to put in Drag Queen Story Hour. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, you had Sora Bamari, who was on Tucker's show last week, and was arguing that it's important that they defend what is virtuous about Christian culture, and uh, that this is an affront that the government should stamp out. Um, and that was a big fight on the right. So we know what side what side of that Tucker falls on, I guess. Obviously. So so now it's been made a a, a show, and seems wonderful to me. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds cool as hell. At the end, there is like little drag queens in training, which is obviously the point, which is a misunderstanding of everything. Yeah. Um, and then he brings on Tammy Bruce to talk about this. Tammy Bruce is Fox's resident gay person. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so, Which you have to have as a conservative media outlet. Yeah, so she's their expert here. Tammy Bruce is the host of Get Tammy Bruce on Fox Nation. We're always delighted to have her on this show. Tammy, great to see you. It does seem, I, I'm Thank not quite you. sure how to describe it. In fact, I won't describe it. What do you think of this? You know, this is fascinating because what you've got here, as you described in your opening, is this effort, I think, to influence uh, and what's shocking about it, not only is it uh, should parents be concerned, taxpayer dollars are going for this, but the gay community should be concerned. This is the opposite of what the gay community says they care about. Look, uh, they come out against uh, the uh, conversion therapy. And the argument is, is that people are going to become who they are. And we shouldn't be persuaded or moved or changed based on other people's experiences right. Or opinions, and here it is. Arguably, this is what they're doing. If if we're against conversion therapy because people can be persuaded, who should not be, should be allowed to be themselves. What do you think is happening when you're talking about this, which is a, a sexual issue and a gender issue, uh, to three to eight year olds? 
I mean, if we're going to be taken seriously, we've gained a lot of goodwill with the American people, appropriately so. Uh, that, you know, there's all kinds of different lives in America. Uh, you know, a, a majority dynamic, uh, of course, with heterosexuals, a minority dynamic with homosexuals. Uh, and, you know, drag queens are fat. They are fabulous. And Americans, you know, we embrace the underdog and the unusual. But this goes too far. What we should do, of course, if we want to be taken seriously and be able to say that everybody grows up, who, whoever it is they might end up being, uh, is uh, to stop going after people's children, to stop trying to move an agenda that is both political and sexual to America's children. What? Yeah. Yeah. So like, she seemed to be building up to a point that she then ignored and then created <laughs> a new point that doesn't follow from anything she was saying. <laughs> yeah. The, this is interesting to me in that she seems to fundamentally misunderstand the issue with conversion therapy. Yeah. Um, her her take seems to be that the problem with conversion therapy is that it works, and you shouldn't make gay kids straight if they're not going to be straight. <sighs> so that's that's not quite the the issue. No, <laughs> conversion therapy is extremely damaging to people. Yeah, yeah, and and by that same token, seeing a drag queen exist is not going to make kids who wouldn't otherwise no. be gay be gay. No. God, just, they they act like it's an infection. Yeah, it, it's not contagious. It's not how those words. No. <laughs> and then that way, obviously, if we're we're convinced as I am that as a gay woman that we become who we are through our experiences, and I don't want uh, people to wonder, gosh, you know, was I persuaded? Was I uh, cajoled? Was I bullied? Was I was I shaped by someone else? This is what none of us want. We don't want it to be about becoming not gay or moving us into a certain kind of arena. That's also up to parents and how parents are going to raise their children. But for this to be taxpayer dollars, television, uh, you know, wait 15 years for those three-year-olds to be 18, and then you can have a fascinating conversation and a great program. It might even be called RuPaul's Drag Race, which, which of course, uh, uh, gets all kinds of awards and I enjoy immensely. But that's for adults. It's not for five-year-olds. We can leave children out of it and then move along in our lives and get the respect we deserve. So you're not old enough to know about drag queens till you're 18. What is the age exactly where you're allowed to know what sexuality is, according to these people? But it's all, it's all stupid. Sexuality is one of those things that isn't easily changed by outside influence. It's pretty ingrained in who you are. Yeah, and she mentioned, like, parents should be responsible for keeping their kids straight that's not how she said it but that's what i heard is that what you heard pretty much yeah yeah, yeah well, no it, parents should not try to convince their kid they're straight if they're not let them be who they are it's not that hard tucker is about to come in with a big swing that this should be the government's responsibility well we should be forced to leave kids out it, it almost feels like they're saying you know how much will you put up with like th this is basically saying to like people who don't want their kids sexually propagandized like, we can, we can do anything we want, right. and there's nothing you can do about it because you're passive and stupid. Well, yes. And I, and I just wonder how long it, well, people will put it, up it's, with it. Uh, not much longer, I hope. Well, see, that's it. And, the, and they've been conditioned to think that if you say no, you're a bigot or you're a homophobe. That is not true. It, again, this does not speak well of the gay community, and it's not the entire gay community who wants this to happen. Well, of course This not. is about basic, basic standards. And, and you're not a bigot for standing up against it. You care about your kids. Uh, gay people care about your kids. 
This is not about indoctrination. This is not what we do. And I personally am getting tired with this militant framework presenting the gay community as though we're all into this and all want it. That's not true. Yeah, it's, it's not true. I happen to know. Tammy, great to see you tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Tucker. They're like saying opposite things, but <laughs> acting like they agree. I'm very confused. Yeah, it is, <laughs> Tucker is dumb. <laughs> this, is, this is a nonsensical conversation. Yeah. Okay, I want to push back on sexually propagandized. <laughs> yeah. Okay, acknowledging the existence of gay people or of drag queens or whatever is not propaganda. It's not saying, oh, you should be gay. It's fun. It's just like, it's okay if this is something that appeals to you. In fact, I, I would make the argument, Tucker, that because gay people and drag queens exist in the world, that trying to pretend that they don't is itself a form of propaganda. Yeah! <laughs> funny that so so that's the end of drag queen story hour um <laughs> and now like clockwork we circle back to dr fauci so tony fauci we now know signed off on taxpayer funding of bizarre and highly dangerous experiments in chinese laboratories we have new information about experiments on babies at the university of pittsburgh that tony fauci is connected to an amazing story a gruesome story next what? This next bit is so fucking weird. <laughs> what about Pittsburgh? It's uh, it's the University of Pittsburgh. Okay. They're experimenting on babies, and Tony Fauci is funding it. Got uh, that? Yep. All right. <laughs> the University of Pittsburgh has been using taxpayers' funds to perform experiments on aborted children. We can't show you the images from that those experiments because they're horrible. But we do know that some of the funding for the so-called medical research came from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. That's run by Tony Fauci. David Delight is the pro-life activist helping to uncover this and many other stories, and we're happy to have him with us tonight. David, thanks so much for coming on. I explain this, this story to us, if thanks, you Tucker. would. Definitely. And, and Tucker, I do just want to acknowledge for your viewers that um, this is a really hard subject to talk about. Um, and this is probably one of the most disturbing studies that I have ever reported on. As you say, you can't show the images on air. Um, you can watch them in the video that's posted at centerformedicalprogress.org. At the University of Pittsburgh, they were doing a study where they were taking the scalps of five-month-old aborted babies and they were grafting them onto lab rats and lab mice to see how much longer they could keep them growing for. And you can actually see the photographs in the published study of little baby scalps grafted onto the backs of lab rats growing little baby hairs. Those would have been the little hairs growing on the heads of little infants in Pittsburgh if they hadn't been killed by abortion and then stitched onto lab rats for experimentation. That's fucking awesome. They can regrow skin that's been transplanted onto another cre- That's fucking cool. Yeah. It <laughs> This is wild. Um, yeah. <laughs> they never clarify what the purpose of this study is. His uh, The closest he gets there is he says that they wanted to monitor how long they could keep it growing, which is not what was going on. It took me a little bit to find uh, credible information on this study. I imagine um, so. But there was a, a, a Catholic journal that was criticizing the study but did link to the actual study so i found it there published in nature the the pictures they're talking about are a little bit gross but they're not as grotesque as they're making it out to be they have to play up the violence of abortion so yeah, that it's not yeah, yeah. the the way the, the way they talk about it is weird like experiments on aborted children like i, I don't know 
Yeah. And then they, he said five-month-old aborted baby, which makes it sound like it was a five-month-old baby. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're going to get to that. The purpose of the study is to look at the immune response that occurs in certain pathogens come in contact with human skin. Here's a quote from the study's introduction. The human skin provides the first line of host protection against environmental injury and host defense against pathogens. Several emerging pathogens, including antibiotic-resistant MRSA, target the skin for infection and disease. Also, vector-borne infections, infectious diseases such as Lyme disease and Dengue fever, are transmitted via inoculation into the skin by ticks and mosquitoes, respectively. Interactions between keratin keratinocytes, skin fibroblasts, and cutaneous immune cells are involved in initiating the systemic immune response. Thus, the skin provides an ideal vaccination target for, for inducing immunity against various pathogens. As reflected by the development of several novel vaccine technologies directed at the skin, including skin patch and intradermal, intradermal vaccines. So what they're doing is they graft human skin onto rats and then introduce these pathogens that triggers an immune response in the rats so they can study that response and help create potential vaccines. Uh, it's like super important research that's being done. Yeah, that's dope. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Tucker and his guest do not explain what's going on there. Yeah, uh, they're just pretending that they're playing with scalps. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, they make it sound like Dr. Fauci is paying for a leather face to fuck around with baby corpses <laughs> and lab rats. This study was funded by a grant, by multiple grants, from the NIAID office, which is run by Dr. Anthony Fauci. And when I was undercover, Planned Parenthood abortion providers told me that they were the ones who were supplying the aborted baby body parts for experiments at the University of Pittsburgh. It's one of those stories we almost hesitated uh, to do because it is so grotesque, uh, but it seemed like in the public interest to tell the truth about what's about what's happening. Has has Fauci absolutely accounted for this? No, and Dr. Anthony Fauci owns every bit of this study because as the head of, and, and owns every bit of this issue because as the head of the NIAID office, the buck stops with him in terms of how those grants are spent, whether they're being monitored and um, made sure that they're ethically and legally and just compliant as far as good stewardship of taxpayer money. The fact that they were using scalps from five-month-old aborted babies, that means that the heads of those children probably needed to be intact in order to get the scalps, which is an indication that those are either partial birth abortion or even infants delivered alive and whole. Did anybody at Dr. Fauci's office ever ask the researchers at Pittsburgh, hey, how are you getting those scalps? How are you getting whole scalps from the heads of, of fetuses without a partial birth abortion? I okay, so... At least two major things there. Uh, what he's talking about as far as children born live with fully formed heads and then killed for their scalps. Uh, does not happen. Yeah, that doesn't happen anywhere anywhere in his imagination <laughs> i think that dr fauci should be brought in front of the senator in front of the united states congress and ask those questions directly about what his office did to make sure that these grants and that these barbaric experiments were in compliance with the with all the applicable applicable federal laws and regulations for those federal taxpayer grants very quickly do you, do you see any hope of that happening of someone being held to account for this you know, I just testified a couple of weeks ago before the Pennsylvania House uh, Health Committee about this. Um, I think that um, people in the grassroots, I think that everyday Americans are, um, are justifiably disturbed and upset and sad and want accountability and want enforcement 
from their from their elected representatives, from government officials on these issues, particularly when I mean we're talking about a set of government policies with fetal experimentation and experiments on aborted children that basically say that our children are worth more dead than alive, um, and because of that, it, it speaks to it speaks to who we are as a people and who we are as as Americans. So I think That's that right. I think that we should demand that there be full transparency and accountability on it. That's right. It's not about choice or reproductive health care. It's just awful. And no country should put up with it for a second. David, I appreciate you coming on tonight. Thank you. Thank you. He was acting totally shocked. Like, oh, they're getting the the abortion material from Planned Parenthood. It's like, yeah, that's where you get abortions. Yeah. yeah. Like, where else are you going to get... Uh... Yeah, and a lot of this goes back to the bullshit about Planned Parenthood selling baby parts. That's... Project Veritas, James O'Keefe shit. Someday we'll, someday I'll cover why that's bullshit in depth because it comes up a lot in these worlds. Yeah, um, if if hearing it doesn't just make you think, oh, that sounds like a fake thing, <laughs> like, because humans wouldn't do. That. Yeah, the people behind uh, revealing that information did jail time for fraud. So, um, interesting. I have to read up on that. Yeah, and as far as the thing about these being five-month abortions he's making that up the a charitable interpretation could be that he was misunderstanding part of the study where the authors explained that they monitored some of the rats for five months after the skin graft to make sure that their bodies didn't reject the new skin because if they were occurrence of graft versus host disease then that could complicate the study of the immune response for pathogens i looked into it and human fetuses grow hair follicles and develop a hair pattern at 14 or 15 weeks so uh, scalp formation would obviously have to occur before that, so we're looking at more like three to three and a half month abortions or first trimester abortions. Okay, which is where most abortions happen. Yeah. If not all of them. Vast majority. So remember how I said that within two weeks, Tucker would do a segment about anti-white racism? <laughs> well, I was Was that you... foreshadowing? <laughs> I was giving you too much credit. He did that shit on Friday. <laughs> So anti-white racism is exploding across the country. Obviously, no one wants to say it, but it's right in your face every single day. And now it's in school system. One teacher even cried when she, quote, discovered her whiteness. What the hell? This should not be happening in America. We'll show you the video next. Yeah, we, we haven't covered it a lot since our second episode, but Tucker talks all the fucking time about these uh, critical race theory being taught in schools. Yeah. It's at least one segment a week. But now anti-white racism is officially in play, and he's going to provide us with some examples. Big air quotes around examples, <laughs> is my guess. You've seen it countless times in the last year. It's really accelerated in the last year since George Floyd died. Fuck you. But affluent professional white people reaching a kind of religious ecstasy, talking about how much they despise themselves because of their own skin color. Mainstream Protestantism died in this country, and this variety of self-loathing appears to have taken its place. Here's the latest example. This is the same shit that in the, in the episode that came out last week where he talked about how he knows he's fighting a holy war. He talks about, well, we all, Americans used to all be Protestants, but now that's gone, but the religious impulse is still there. So what he's saying is that, like, this woke anti-white agenda is the new religious experience of affluent liberals. Citation needed. <laughs> Yesterday, I realized that I'm white and that I have all the advantages of being part of that group. I was reading White Fragility. I'm like, oh, okay. I think 
I'm taking that next step in my journey to understanding what's happening, what equity is about, what racial equity is about, what anti-racism is about, and what racism is about. I realized that I'm white. Have you have you seen these panels that that show you what you show them? I think they're called mirrors. <laughs> I'd never heard of such a thing. And then I looked and I was pale. (laughs) We can find some flimsy agreement, Tucker, that that lady is kind of cringy. (laughs) As part of a white supremacy culture. The next step of my journey. All of this, by the way, at its root is just pure narcissism. And that's why it only appeals to a certain kind of professional class, unhappy person. Many of them female, just be totally honest about it, but not exclusively. Anyway, it's terrible. It's racist by definition. You shouldn't hate people or yourself because of how you were born or your skin color. That's the opposite of what this country stood for. It's the opposite of what Martin Luther King preached. And it makes it impossible to live as a country if this crap continues. But it is continuing. In fact, it's accelerating. The state of Washington just made anti-weight training mandatory for all staff in all public schools. I might have to do an episode someday about just all the ways he misrepresents Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> uh, uh, this country stood for equality of all people, did it? Yeah. yeah. I, c- I can think of a few groups of people who would disagree with that analysis of American history. <laughs> oh, you mean white people. <laughs> He, he brings on Jason Rance to talk about a, a program institute in Seattle to teach uh, educational staff about racism. Okay. Uh, some of the cuts, including race as a social construct created to advance white supremacy, and that if you get defensive when you're called a racist, well, of course, that's also white supremacy culture in action. They're being told that wait, suburbs wait, 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 are May racist. I interrupt you r- right there? Wait, I, I mean... I don't think any of us want to live in a country where people are racially self-conscious, where you think about your race all the time, that you don't want to live in that place. It's Rwanda. It's bad. Has it occurred to any of these geniuses that they are going to make your average white person racially self-aware, some of them really radical, in a bad way if they keep up with this crap, if they keep attacking people on the basis of qualities that those people can't control? Like, they're creating radicalism. Do they know that? Tucker doesn't want to talk about race? Sure. Um, Whatever you say. It it was interesting to me there that he's essentially, when he talks about creating radicalism, he's proactively blaming white supremacist violence on the wokes. It's their fault for making white men feel so bad that they have to do radicalism. (sighs) So that's fun. That's, That's a good take. Well, we would have arrested that guy that robbed you blind, but you left your door unlocked, so obviously it's your fault. You think that white guy would have done that if you didn't make him think he was white? (laughs) What are you talking about? For real. And then Jason Rance accidentally reveals what they're misleading people about. (laughs) I, I don't think they realize that they're doing that, because they're talking to a very specific group of people that they're trying to become subservient to an ideological cause. And they think they're justified in the shaming, the race-based shaming that they're doing to these people and eventually doing to these kids. That's really what this is about. They're not really focused on the adults. They're not talking to the adults. They're talking to the kids. This training right now is going to be to the staff members, but the end goal is to propagandize, indoctrinate children 
That's the end goal. And when you get all of our nation's kids believing this garbage, this trash, this toxic thinking, well, then when they're in charge, it doesn't matter that older folks who are dying out actually hold that position. That's how they think. They're trying to create a revolution, one uh, critical race theory training session at a time. It, it really is nefarious in its intent. And I don't think they realize or really care about the danger that it's creating in this environment. And thankfully, there are teachers who are leaking a lot of this stuff out who are complaining and who aren't going to put this in front of kids, but it's the parents that really need to step up and protect them from this. Yeah, stop being passive. Put down the bomb. Yeah. Do something about this. This will wreck the country. For real. This is really scary. I, I right. appreciate your reporting on it. Jason Rance, thank you. Thanks, Tucker. Put down the bong? Why, why is he bringing weed into this? Well, it's, it's a symbol of lazy parents who don't Stop their kids from learning about racism. Okay, I I can't remember. Was it one hundred and fifty dollars a week or three hundred dollars a week that he spends yeah. on <laughs> chewing tobacco or uh, nicotine gum? Right. Yeah. The danger of teaching people to be racially sensitive is what exactly? Yeah, and well, it's gonna, it's going to make all these sad white people radical. And what Jason Rance throws out there that the, these are training programs for teachers and faculty is exactly what they're trying to obfuscate. These workshops aren't being done with students. They're to like teach faculty how to be more sensitive to a diverse student population and try to improve outcomes for minority students. If I was a leftist tyrant who wanted to change the structure of the government and I had the power to do that, I think meetings with teachers would be the worst way for me to achieve my goals. <laughs> they fundamentally misunderstand like critical race theory and the concept of systemic racism. And it, like we talked about earlier, it's not an indictment of any individual and in that people can act with completely non-racist intentions and perpetuate racist outcomes. Through racist systems, yeah. Yeah. So the fact that Tucker is so threatened by that, I, I don't believe... I know this has been explained to him. Yeah. Is, uh, the fact that he's so threatened by that means that on some level he knows he benefits from these power structures is the way they currently exist. Yep. So that's the end of that. But before he got out of the studio on Friday, Tucker found time to talk about one more big breaking story. It's not Gaza. It's not <laughs> Matt Gates. Well, like all obedient Americans, we're pretty dialed into what the CDC has to say about our lives. Every day we check for new guidance, and we have new guidance. For once, it has nothing to do with the coronavirus. This guidance from the CDC is about chickens. The CDC is warning Americans about chickens, and we're quoting now. Don't kiss or snuggle backyard poultry, and don't <laughs> eat or drink around them, end quote. Now, that raises the question, who are these chicken touchers out there that the CDC is concerned about? And we're not judging as we ask that. We just would like to know. Are there people in this country who snuggle chickens? There are. And again, not judging. We found one. Here she is. My name is Tara. I'm 27, and I'm a chicken enthusiast. Oh, my My chickens are like my babies. Since I don't have human babies, these are my human babies. I have one special chicken. Her name is Sheila. She stays in my room with me. She does everything with me. This is Sheila. This is my one true love. Ben's pretty cute. Do you think he likes chickens? I love Tara. 
She's oh. my new favorite person. He's about to interview Tara. <laughs> no fucking way. <laughs> they they track Tara down. <laughs> Tara Solem is the chicken enthusiast you just saw. We're happy to have her on tonight. Tara, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, what, oh that's a that's thanks a good looking bird. Me. So how do you? She it feels like you've been. Sing- she brought the chicken. <laughs> Singled out by the CDC for criticism. How does that feel? You know, I'm not a huge fan of it because I've been handling chickens since I was about four years old. And I've been kissing them, snuggling them, shoving my face in them. And I'm fine. (laughs) People around me are fine. And I don't see a problem with it. I mean, people, you're living the way people used to live. I mean, human beings have a long history with poultry. It's a domesticated animal, right? Why yeah. do you think there's, there's the concern now? Why, why are they coming after you now, the CDC? I think that maybe they're just looking for something else to control. And I'm not a huge yeah. fan, and I don't support yeah. it. So I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm going to keep <laughs> loving on my birds and showing them my affection. You do that, Tara. <laughs> so Tucker's kind of proving something here that even though the CDC guidelines come out, you don't have to follow them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There, there's nobody who's going to come check. <laughs> yeah, but they're tyrants. Trust. <laughs> T- tell us what you are doing with those birds. I mean, you, does the does that bird? Who is that? Is that Sheila? No, no, no. This is not Sheila. Uh, this is Bad Boy Halo. This is one of my roosters <laughs> that I hatched back in February. <laughs> And he basically just makes me babies, and he's a real important in my flock. What what kind of pet does he make? I mean, do, for people who are thinking, you know, people think of chickens as eggs and dinner. You're describing a whole new way of looking at chickens. Are they good pets? <laughs> I fully support everybody owning a chicken in their lifetime. They are way smarter than people give them credit for. They have facial recognition. They know exactly who I am when I pull up to my house. Um, they're just all around great pets. They have amazing personalities. And people are over here saying that they're dumb and stupid, and they're not. Not even for a second. So I, I got to ask you, since you're an enthusiast and an expert, I, someone once told me that chickens are so dumb, if you face them in a corner, they can't get out. Is that true? Whoever made that up has something against birds, and it's not true at all. They know exactly what to do. Sometimes they get stuck in corners, but for the most part, they can figure it out. (laughs) No, it's not true. Sometimes they get stuck in corners. (laughs) Oh, my God. Are you giving me a gift? <laughs> how, many, how many do you, you're totally winning me over? By the way, I'm just going to be honest about it. How many chickens do you have? I have thirty. Holy shit! Do you live in a many. rural area? Thirty chickens. <laughs> yeah, so I live out kind of more towards the outskirts of the city, and I have about twenty-two acres there with all of them living there with me. Are those, last question, are these house birds? I mean, I'm I'm trying not to ask, do they sleep on the bed? But I'll just ask, do they sleep on the bed? So when I have like chicks, when I've hatched chicks, I have been known to bring them inside. I'll like roll them up in a towel and they'll sleep next to me and it will be like a chicken burrito. 
And sometimes they'll come inside, like if I need to give them a bath or clean them or stuff, but they're pretty comfortable inside. <laughs> I am such a believer. Tara, thank you so much for coming on tonight. That was great. Good to see you. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me. I love Tara so much. She's great. <laughs> and, and this, this is the perfect cap on this week. This is the only through line I can pull. Like, this show is dumb. It's so dumb. <laughs> this is so stupid. He pretends this is a new show. <laughs> like, what did we talk about this week? We talked about baby skulls being grafted onto rats without explaining what that act, what the study was. Yep. We talked about how dogs are better at cats than better, better than, than cats, cats. At hunting rats. Yep. Um, <laughs> talk to Tara, who's delightful. <laughs> <laughs> we we learned that. Your drag queen story hour is going to turn your kids gay. Like, this is all stupid. Yeah. He's talked about UFOs every day. <laughs> uh, God, I'm, I'm worried at this point that this is going to make me dumber. <laughs> I feel like he should just get off Fox and, like, make a YouTube show. And he can just have whoever on that he wants. And it doesn't have to, he doesn't have to pretend that it's about politics. He can just talk to cute chicken ladies and (laughs) do whatever he wants yeah god like we would all be happier tucker (laughs) become who you are (laughs) all right so tyler we are at two hours and 24 minutes Um, is that a new record (laughs) it sure is um (laughs) so uh what's our sworn enemy this week uh i mean it's ted jones baby um (laughs) Our first $20 patron. Ted Jones, you're awesome. Before we wrap up, I want to really quickly talk about one thing. So we haven't been bringing this up because we've been really behind on it, but you do a frankly obscene amount of research for all of these episodes. (laughs) Um, And we're working on having all of the resources that you talk about and that you find um, be put on the website, tuckeredoutpod.com. So... I'm up through, so I've been putting them in. The last two episodes I did had more than 90 resources. So if you're listening and you're the type of person that wants to read about the things we talk about on the show, go to the website, and um, I'm up through episode 8. This is episode 14? Yeah. Okay, so in in the next week or two, I hope to be caught up, and then if we talk about something that you find interesting, you'll be able to find it on the website along with a doctoral dissertation level number of <laughs> sources <laughs> um also if you're lazy like me and you have a research paper that you want to write um about something we talk about troy probably found all your sources for you so uh don't tell your college i told i let the secret out it's <laughs> yeah, the service we provide <laughs> and i and tyler beat me to it but i was gonna shout out that uh so we do have a website for the show it's suckit.pod.com yeah um <laughs> I, I try to be humble, but I do have some skills. There are things I'm good at. One of them is not making websites. Um, so if you went to... If in the first several weeks of the show's existence, you visited our website, you probably found like an unusable, unnavigable dumpster fire. Um, and Tyler has done amazing work getting it into shape and making it like a functional place to go for information and stuff. So Doing I'm my best. <laughs> incredibly thankful for the, to him for that. Yeah, we are also on Twitter. Uh, you can find us at TuckeredOutPod. You can find me on Substack. It's TroyMatthew.substack.com. And uh, what the fuck else? Oh, Patreon. We're on Patreon. Yeah. Uh, you can be one of the amazing people like Ted or any of the others. 
And, uh, yeah, find us there. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thank you so much. Um, don't watch Chucker's show. I'll do it for you and try to enjoy your life. <laughs> Buck up. It's going to get better. <laughs>